Welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. with episode 110 and panoramics excited to bring to you today tight loops tight loops live fishing chase and amy come on board chase and amy barty come on board and we we had a little communication creativity that we had to incur there because we have a chase on our own uh our own episode here so i think might be the first time in podcast history that we've had two chases around the table i don't know what do you what do you figure there chaser Stars have aligned of awesomeness and brought together two outdoor greats, two, two, two <laughs> chases from the oh, outdoor world. <laughs> the names have been written in the stars. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. I don't know. I, I uh, uh, on a side note, I hope I have half the talent that he has, or as much talent as his pinky finger might, because he does some pretty awesome work. Yeah. So the work Chase is talking about is the Tight Loops crew there is not only put out some seminal work, uh, their film Big Land, but also their their new mini series called For Wild's Sake. You can check them all on YouTube. We'll get into that more. We talked to Chase and Amy in depth about each one of those. But like you were saying, Chaser, like you two, Chase and Sheldon got out on a little fishing excursion of their own, headed up Clear Lake. How'd that go, fellas? We had a little outing, yeah. We uh, it's been a couple of years since we've been up there, and I was pretty excited to get back up because I mean the the focus of the trip up there is generally whitefish and sight fishing. So we went up targeting some whitefish, and we had a interesting day. We had a lot some success right when we got there, and so we got all set up. We set up the the HT Enterprises um, Polar Explorer tents there from Harvester. And got nice and cozy in them, drilled some big uh, sight fishing holes, and got settled in, and the action died right off. So (laughs) (laughs) we still got to see quite a few fish, which was always a lot of fun. Always more fun catching them, but uh, it's always cool to see the fish behavior and stuff like that. And we got to see a couple big pike cruising by. And uh, yeah, it ended up being a, a pretty decent weekend overall. Yeah, I wasn't really surprised that we didn't catch many fish because we've said it before. We uh, <clears throat> when Chase and I get together, it's hard to hard to get on them sometimes. But it was, I think, overall it was a good day because we we did land a few fish, so that's goal number one. I know uh, a lot of people have gone out there and, and haven't caught any. So if we're in the right spot or the wrong spot, we got two. So that's the main thing. The thing that I was really well, one thing that I was kind of like upset about, I guess, in the trip was the going to Elkhorn there the night before trying to get licenses and they wouldn't sell us ones for the next day. So if you guys are planning a trip up there, just remember to get your, your license for the, the your federal license for the national park. And um, I don't know if they'll be able to sell it to you the day before. So keep that in mind when you're going up there. Um, but yeah, overall it was a good trip and I really enjoyed the one. And the other thing I really enjoyed was the, we got some striker. I got some striker bibs from Stillwater Adventures in Verdon. And I got to try those for the first time, and I was so impressed, like super warm. Um, we were drilling a lot of holes, a lot of slush, a lot of water, and I was dry. 
obviously wearing rubber boots, but super, they're super impressive. Lots of pockets. Um, one thing when you're fishing those big holes, I always think about my phone, keys, whatever, um, like falling out of my bibs, but it, like all the bibs have zippers. So super impressed with those uh, striker suits. And we got them, like I said, from Stillwater Adventures in Verdon. If you are looking to get some striker stuff, one thing that I do know is that they're the only ones I think in Manitoba that have the brown uh, bibs and they're even sold out online. So if you're looking for that brown color, Stillwater Ventures does have them. And big news is that their their website just launched today or yesterday by the time you guys listen to this. So if you go to stillwateradventures.ca, you can go on there and check out all the products that they do have for sale. Um, and uh, yeah, support local, support your local uh, sports shop, angling shop. That's exciting. It looks like they have quite a bit of gear there. I haven't uh, fired up the website here yet, but uh, just looking at some of the photos from in-store, looks like they're wall-to-wall with whatever you need fishing. Yeah, I, w- I went in there last week, and I was so impressed. I've been in uh, you know quite a few stores, rural stores um, throughout the province, and this one being a new one, they got all the right gear. They've got all, like, all the clam um, stuff, all the... Eskimo stuff, anything that you're looking for, like they got augers, tents, heaters, and then all, of course, all your rods and hooks, and then and then like outer layers, like uh, outerwear, or whatever, ice fishing gear, sweat pants and jackets. They got that DSG stuff for the women. They've got a lot of cool stuff in there, so I'd really, I'd really highly recommend checking it out if you're on the west side of the province. Nice. That's good to hear. I know that those that outerwear really goes a long way too in keeping you out on the ice as long as you want to be and staying comfortable. So glad you guys got in a couple striker bibs there. Yeah. I got the bibs, Chase got the full suit, but uh, yeah, super nice gear. I'm super impressed. And then we were using that Jiffy there on the ice to drill our big holes. We were going to go there with an ice saw and um, kind of last minute, the guy we were going with went and looked and it was gone. So we didn't have one. So we had to drill for the one hole, what did you say, Chase, like 25 or 30, 25 holes, I think, to drill that big the big hole out? No, we did 15. So we did six across, two, two rows of six, and then I just drilled like one in each end to, to sink it kind of thing. Okay. And a couple extra. Plus, just, yeah, uh, yeah, a couple extra ones around. Yeah. Was that Jiffy Ice Hogger chewed that ice pretty quick? Like, that was pretty impressive. Yeah, it was good. It was nonstop, man. Just pounded that out, no problem. Yeah. I can imagine that chipper blade would really help kind of with that, that process. I remember doing it at the Eskimo and it, my arms were like rattling after the fact, you know what I mean? Just with the big gas job. Yeah. That's, that's the cool thing about that, that, uh, auger man is like, all you have to do with it is just grab the handles and make it go and just hang on to it. Like you don't have to put any extra pressure on it. It just chooses way through the ice and, and you're there. So mm-hmm. it's pretty awesome. Obviously, you got to clear the hole out a couple times, especially when the ice gets thicker. But uh, other than that, it's a pretty sweet unit. Nice, nice. And uh, Sheldon, you finally got this Try the HT Enterprises tent. I, I know Chase and I popped it up in uh, West Hawk. There, we didn't. We had even less luck than you guys did on Clearwater or Clear Lake. But also recognize that even though it was a much bigger tent, that insulation factor seemed to play a, a big thing and keeping us warm on maybe one of the coldest days that we fished so far. What did you, what did you think of the HT tent there, Sheldon? Yeah, that's the first one. I, well, I fished out of like the, what, what shape is it even like a hexagon? What's a five pentagon? 
I think it's a pentagon. Sure. Yeah, pentagon. Let's go with that. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's like one of my first times fishing out of it. And surprisingly, there's there's a bunch of room because only Chase and I were in it. But like the hole was as big as probably a normal size coffee table. And then behind us, there was like a bunch of room. We like cooked a bunch of food in there. We had all our gear in there. And the and I don't know what it would be like. Maybe minus like twelve at yeah. the at the coldest maybe that day. But like with the heat going on in there and. The one thing I didn't I noticed compared to my like old like Cabela's one is like it would start dripping because all the humidity and I don't know if that insulation kind of like soaks that up or whatever but it it was really good like the, I had no complaints with it easy to set up easy to set down and the bags that they gave you for them um, I mean they're 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 basically perfect like you don't you don't struggle with it like a sleeping bag so mm-hmm. um, yeah it was super I liked it and I'm, I'm excited to use it again nice man nice. That's great to hear. Well, we're going to talk to a few open water specialists here shortly. But uh, did you guys have any final thoughts before we launch into the the main body, the meat and potatoes of the old tight loops here? Oh, man. This this conversation flew by for me, and uh, it really got me dreaming about summer days, tossing the, tossing the fly line around. So um, I'm excited to give it a listen again, and uh, I'm, I'm really happy we got to connect with these folks. Yeah, and we might have talked to him in. Who knows? You know, we're, we're kind of a big deal, so we, we're not sure if they'll be able to uh, pull it, but uh, we'll see how it goes. I, th- I I lost you there for a second, Tristan, but did you say you, you, we talked him into coming catfishing? Is that what you're going to say? Yeah, yeah, I was just saying we, we kind of... I, I'm hoping we pulled them because we're kind of a big deal. I was just saying we're, our schedules book up quickly, but I think, uh, I think we could squeeze... <laughs> squeezing the tight loop screw there hey eh? what do you think yeah i think we got a spot for them <laughs> okay without further ado here we'll introduce jason and amy from tight loops hope you enjoy this one hey everyone more exciting news coming out of wool love they've got a new sister company called north wool apparel north wool builds on the advantage of of the 100 percent merino wool base layers from wool love and it adds in the flexibility and durability of spandex to create a premium mid-layer that will keep you warm, comfortable, and odorless free so you can squeeze out those extra, that extra time out in the ice, winter camping, hiking, doing whatever you love to do in the wintertime. All of us at Panoramic have been wearing this stuff for over a year now, and we love it. So they got two cool new garments in with the Northwall sister company. They got a men's quarter zip-up hoodie, and they also got some women's leggings. So if you're looking for something to, uh, you know, maybe that mid-layer garment, you should check out Wool Love. That's wool.love. Check out Northwall. And right now, you can use Panoramic 10 for $10 off your first purchase. It's available on Amazon and through the website, like I said, www.wool.love, and just look for the Northwall project. The promo code is only valid with the Wool Love site. So please check them out. That's wool.love or check out their Instagram. Yep. All right. And we're very excited to welcome Chase and Amy of Tight Loops to the podcast. Chase and Amy Barty. Did I say the last name correctly? Yep. Yeah. yeah, you did. Most people say it all sorts of different weird ways, <laughs> but you got it right on the first try. And yeah, thanks so much for having us. Uh, honored to be here. All right. All the practice paid off. Um and we're super excited to sit down with you because we we know that uh, the lifestyle keeps you very busy and on, on the road frequently. Where are you hanging your hat tonight, though? We are in California, 
in Southern California, right outside of Joshua Tree National Park. And we've been staying at a friend's house, which has kind of been a nice treat for the past few weeks. We're usually in our, our camper van full time, but uh, yeah, it's sunny and warm and getting lots of work done on the van, lots of work done on the projects we've got going on. And it's been very nice to be here. Yeah, our, uh, our friends are actually full time on the road also who have this house. They just bought this house as sort of a, a financial investment, hoping to turn it around as a rental. Um, but they've run into all sorts of red tape about how quickly they could do that. So they're kind of stuck here. They have the house, they can't rent it out yet. So they figured they're also, you know, they work from the road. So it's nice to just like have a couple of weeks where they could settle and get some work done. And then we came and met up with them because we're all traveling to Mexico together um, here at the end of the month. Um, so we're both just sort of acting like we're sedentary and have a house for like a couple of weeks, even though, yeah, norm normally we're on the road and our, you know, our vehicles are parked right outside and we'll be getting back on the road here again in a week or two. You're posing right now. You're, uh, yeah. you're posing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all good though. I, I noticed you mentioned Joshua Tree too, which I, I just got finished watching the the one episode there for wild sake. And uh, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll talk more about, it, I'm sure, but exciting to know that you're still around uh some of those really iconic um parks i'm also wondering too um well Ch we, chaser we got the five burning questions here and chase and amy since you haven't been on the podcast before we ask our guests uh what we call our five burning questions to get to know you just a little better they can be rapid fire but we've also had guests take about half an hour to get through this um <laughs> The session too so we're not going to stress either way and i guess technically it'll be 10 because it'll be two of you answering so yeah all right yeah bring it on are you feeling ready Ken? what what's on the playlist these days and i'm uh, you have to tell me too if westy your van has a uh an a track or a tape deck or is it uh, all digital oh gosh uh so the van has a cd player but has bluetooth capability but i will say speaker wise not great and it's really loud when we're driving so there's a lot of driving in silence uh but we did pick up a like external bluetooth speaker that we throw up on the dash and we listen to a lot of podcasts and i mean we listen to a pretty similar type of music i guess but it's it's kind of all over the place lately for me between outlaw country some kind of pop stuff uh yeah, I don't know. I'm yeah, trying to think of like the top five for me, but it's a it's a pretty eclectic mix. But I'd say in general, we usually kind of fall in the like folk singer songwriter country um, world. But I grew up listening to punk music, so yeah. that's like always kind of my base. But right. I've since expanded a little bit. Um, but yeah, nothing too. Amy's underselling it. She didn't just grow up listening to punk music. She, tour <laughs> she toured as a punk musician. Oh, yeah, I used for to play years. in bands. And, and, yeah, oh, it, was, nice. it was really my my life for, for quite a long time. And it's actually, That's... it's been kind of strange to be removed from that scene for the past few years because it really was a big part of my life. Yeah. So I, I wonder if there's a connection there because like one of my favorite uh, country musicians actually cut his teeth as a as a punk rock artist and I, I don't know if there's something about the punk rock genre that just lends itself to country music really well or what but uh i i wouldn't call that an 
the uh, smooth, a natural transition by uh, any means. Yeah, I mean, I think you could kind of look at some of the outlaw country stuff in that genre as like a punk version of country music in a way, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, within within the country genre, when most people hear country music, they probably think of a slightly more polished, modern, um, like cat country, radio, pop country thing. But there's sort of this whole... Um, subsect of the country world that's just sort of troublemakers you know and i I think those sort of like low life drug using hard drinking outlaw types (laughs) who would make country music sort of identify with the you know rabble rousing punk rock people yeah i think i think in that in that genre there's actually probably a lot more crossover than than people think being a a punk kid people are like oh you listen to country music and probably vice versa from country fans but Mm -hmm. Somewhere in there, there's there's a bit of a, a crossover that I think that's sort of what led me down that road, um, just listening to folk and, and singer-songwriter music and, and finding different artists that way that had a, a similar mindset, but different style of music, so. Yeah, maybe as uh, Hank Williams Jr. would say, it's uh, it's a family tradition in some ways, eh? Just going down, <laughs> that's right. following his papa's shoes there. Um, Okay. Yeah, that's exciting too. I I do uh I do love that genre too. Have you listened to the new Sturgill album yet or uh I haven't listened to it, but I've been adding it to the Baja playlist of things to like download offline, give it a good listen while we're hanging out on the beach and nice. and having some downtime. So you, I'm guys, excited to to listen to it. Are you guys gonna be chasing roosters in Baja? The the fishing plans are very loose um to to non-existent so we're, we're going with <laughs> we're traveling with our other friends two three other couples who all live on the road the two mac and owen who have this house that we're in now and then we're meeting two other couples who we also know and have traveled with pretty extensively and none of them really fish mac and owen have started fishing through us in the last year or two during our travels they've picked up a fly rod and, and fish a little bit but no one's like as fish crazy as we are yeah um, I think the the most of the fishing plans are sort of to spear fish and snorkel to make fish tacos. Oh, There's nice. like a ton of like rod and reel plans, but yeah. we're gonna load up on clousers and bring our nine weights and just like I don't know, foil yeah. around on this. Yeah, give, give it a shot. But we're not, we're certainly not planning an itinerary around like yeah. fishing spots or anything like that. Yeah. Well, if uh, yeah, we'll go. Yeah. We'll carry on with the questions before I get going too deep here. <laughs> go ahead, Tristan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. On to number two, this one might give me a little hot water, but uh, who's the better wrench puller or the better mechanic? Oh, well, Chase for sure. Uh, I think he's gone a little bit deeper in the, the Vanagon repair world, but we both come from a background of working on old Volkswagens. I grew up working on cars. My dad, my brother, my dad always was trying to teach me and show me as much as he possibly could to to help me work on my own cars. And um, so there's a little bit of background there for both of us, but I'd say that Chase takes on most of the the heavy lifting. I'm, I'm there for assistance and maybe some like words of encouragement um, <laughs> and an extra set of hands for sure. But um, yeah, yeah, I would say probably what it has it a lot to do with his strength. I'm, I'm uh, lots more of things of, are like seized on that van. Oh, yeah, I, can't, yeah. I can't crack everything. So. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm also in life, I'd say more of a glutton for punishment, which working on a 35 plus year old shit box is like 
can really be punishing sometimes. <laughs> um, I have a little bit more patience for that stuff. Um, but yeah, Amy actually comes from more of a background uh, in wrenching than I do because her dad and brother both race cars and work on cars and are car people, whereas my folks were academics. I didn't have anyone really showing me the ropes on that kind of stuff. But I just decided when I bought my first car to buy another old shitbox Volkswagen and it was my daily driver. So I just had to learn out of necessity. Um, and yeah, since then I've just sort of continued to carry that torch. I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily love it, um, but it's just become a part of my life, whether I love it or not. And, you know, become pretty proficient at it just because I had to. I was pretty passionate about getting one of these vans uh, when we first started looking into vehicles. We never thought that we would live in it, uh, so we don't have a full camper model. We have a weekender, so we basically have none of the perks of a full camper. We don't have a kitchen. We don't have cabinets. We don't have storage. We don't have a sink. We don't have a refrigerator built in, so we have a big table, which is great. We have a little bit more dining working area and because we travel with our cat we also have a jump seat instead of cabinetry so we have a little spot for his cat litter box but um yeah i pushed really hard to get that van and we both didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into we knew they were quirky and they had a lot of things that we were going to need to learn but we were like we've had both volkswagens we work on these cars it will be fine and then realizing that like we're, we're diving into a whole different type of engine with these vans. It's been a crazy learning process. We've had it since 2014, I think. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that time was spent sitting in our driveway or in the backyard and, and just slowly working our way through issues. Every trip we took out west, we encountered some almost debilitating issue with the van where like we were in Bozeman and we needed to get back to Massachusetts and we took it to a shop because we were having all kinds of issues. We were stuck in Yellowstone. We finally got it out of the park and then, you know, they told us like, you have almost no compression in your engine. Um, and they're like, where do you need to get to? And we said Massachusetts and they, they essentially laughed in our faces, yeah. but we drove it all the way back and we made it. So I think it's been a really interesting experience for us, but we've just learned so much. So we're getting to a point now where we're on the more like preventative care and maintenance side of things, where it's not just like waiting for disasters to happen to us, but with these vans, you have to be prepared for every possible issue that could go wrong. And we carry so many spare parts, fluids, weird, you know, contraptions and rubber caps and wiring supplies and it's just yeah it's it's a lot but you do really have to love these things to to make it work i think One, and it's been it's been great so i mean chase has to do most of the crappy work but <laughs> it i think at the end of the day it, it connects us even more to our vehicle which is maybe detrimental but, yeah um, i'd say yeah. <laughs> you either you either have to love them or just become sentimentally attached in a yeah. way where you can't move on oh yeah I, I don't know if you know where we exist is like somewhere in between love and just like attached regardless yeah. so yeah and we're, like, we're no, still running no the same plan band. b so yeah. yeah one good thing about that situation is like you you already know what's pretty much going to happen before anything even happens yeah. right you can yeah. diagnose yeah, pretty much yeah, we've pretty much gone through every every system you could yeah. go through in the van at least once, most more than once. So, um, yeah, there's not too much new territory uh, to scratch our heads on. But yeah, it's certainly it's been a test of our patience and 
don't know, relationship, I guess, like traveling in a van, living in a small space, being married, and then having to work on a vehicle together. Like we both kind of have a different style of, of working on projects like that and like stress level and anxiety. And when you're on the road and something catastrophic happens, like we blew our rear heater core climbing a pass in Virginia and it was like a coolant waterfall coming out of the side of the vehicle and our cats in the van with us and it, it's taught us a lot about how to persevere through those situations remain calm and just try to like take it one step at a time and understand that like we're gonna be okay as long as we're safe we'll get through it so I don't know there's some like philosophical life lesson in there somewhere <laughs> So that's what for wild sake is, is really just a, a relationship guide and it's less about fishing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you guys are, you guys are merging like two of the most dangerous things couples can kind of do together. Yeah. Is like that. And then like we also, house... we paddle a canoe together. So. Yeah, that's, right. that's the other relationship killer. Oh, yeah. and, and <laughs> yeah. We've done it all. So yeah. we, we're still here. Yeah. Vehicle problems and house problems, which are, actually fall under the same kind of category for you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unreal. If yeah, uh, here's, here's number three. If you, if you had a last meal, what would it be? Oh God. Um, honestly, this is like, all my friends will laugh at me for saying this, but probably cheeseburger from In-N-Out Burger. Ha, I saw that made a cut. I saw that made the cut. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a big fan. Maybe too much of a fan. Uh, That's good. Yeah, I, I haven't had one in a while. Yeah. I'd say mine would probably be chicken pot pie, but it has to be like chicken pot pie made by my mom when I was like 10. You know, it's got to be like a time and a place thing. But yeah. We need a time machine for that one too then. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, maybe that van can do it. It sounds pretty special. <laughs> yeah. Um, someone you either like admire or maybe look to for inspiration. You can go first on that, I think, on that one. Is that a tough one? It is a tough one. Yeah, gosh. Well, I think, you know, because we're artists and creative people, we're pulling inspiration from all over the place all the time. Um so it's hard to think about one source of inspiration. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess probably like the, the most inspiration that I get on a daily basis is honestly from the natural world. I don't know if it's from a person. Um, any time I'm feeling uninspired, time outside seems to rejuvenate um, that inspiration. And yeah, you could fill in the blank with like, thousand different people who make great outdoor content which you know inspires me too but yeah i'd say i'd say the most most of my inspiration come comes from the natural world and i actually when i'm working on something which i'm working on stuff all the time i kind of try and um block out too much influence from other creators um because yeah being a sort of sensitive art type i think i'm just like and probably both of us are kind of vulnerable to influence in a way where, yeah. yeah, if you, if you get too inspired by other people kind of like can lose your voice in that. So I try and just find my voice from the outside, yeah. but I don't know, you could pick anything as an inspiration. Like you could even be music again, that you're listening to or something that's inspiring you or photography that's been inspiring you or something like that. Yeah. There's nothing specific that comes to mind. I feel like there's, there's certainly a lot of different, sources of inspiration um as far as like people i mean there's a lot of 
folks that I consider almost to be peers that I don't necessarily know, but follow on social media and just see the work they're doing and, and how much work they're doing and, you know, persevering through difficult situations. And it's a lot of inspiration just from people that I would consider to be peers. Oh yeah. You know what I would say? I'd say definitely we're inspired by the folks who's, uh, lovely new home here we're staying in yes. <laughs> mac mac and owen from bound for nowhere on social media and youtube uh, their work ethic is just insane um i yeah. i kind of can't fathom even though i'm here with them how well they're able to balance work life with traveling life um yeah they've they've taught us so much since we met them and we've spent a lot of time with them on the road they've helped us through a lot of different scenarios, business-wise, creativity, just lifestyle stuff of living on the road. And yeah, const a constant source of, of inspiration and motivation to, to really work harder and well, yeah, some, somehow figure just out squeeze more stuff. the most yeah. out of life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can't, I just can't believe how how much they're able to get done with every day. Whereas I'm much more prone to life tangents when I just go off on something, but they're so focused, you know. That's inspiring. I uh, I feel almost um, a little embarrassed. Like I <laughs> I watch your videos and like my jaw hits the floor sometimes. I'm like, wow, they they are just living it. And like uh, you know, I look at you know my life. So to hear that there's another level yet um, <laughs> has me worried. Yeah. <laughs> I'm stressed about it. Uh, that's that's good though and just to clarify too nature was a perfectly acceptable answer too so but uh i like the uh bound for nowhere tangent well, as well yeah well i didn't you know it's like we're both like i don't know what it's supposed to. you heard yeah. it here first tight loops are uninspired <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel like i just haven't thought about that in, in a while but there's there's really just so many different sources of inspiration kind of flowing in at, at all times so yeah, hard to pinpoint just one thing. That's probably our toughest question that we ask sometimes, and but uh, we always get some sort of interesting answer out of it, so I keep it on the roster. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, the last one here, I'm wondering, I was going to ask where would you spread your ashes, but maybe since you're the rambling kind, um, I'd ask where would you put down your roots if you, if the van finally broke down and you mm, had to, well, had to stop moving. You know. Montana's always been on our list. Chase's family's from Montana, which is a big part of why we decided to make an official move out there. So we technically are Montana residents, despite the fact that we travel in our van uh, pretty much full time. So I think if money wasn't an issue, uh, we are always looking for land in Montana. Certainly with the past two years, prices have kind of skyrocketed. It's getting farther and farther from being attainable, but I think we're reluctant to let go of that dream. But somewhere in the Montana, Idaho, Wyoming kind of area. And then we've also thought about building a small cabin up in Maine. And I think for us, you know, those two locations would, would cover a lot of what we love, but we're also hoping to get up to Alaska in the next year or two and feel drawn to Alaska despite not having set foot there yet, but I have a feeling that could be added to the list. I'm impressed you narrowed it down to three. So that's, yeah, it's, I'm like, Oh, well, there's also <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of great places. You know, we hadn't spent much time in the desert either and spent time in Arizona and different areas of Utah. And, and really like, there's just so many amazing places 
Uh, I think it's just a matter of trying to find the place that offers the most access to what we love about the outdoors. And yeah, so, I, I could. So, sorry, go ahead. I, I could imagine the uh the battle that is sometime just thinking about that for you guys because i i've done like a fraction of the traveling that i'm sure you, you guys have and and uh every time i go somewhere new and obviously there's that that bit of a allure that is a new place and it's different and it's everything's beautiful right for the most part mm-hmm. and it's always like oh I could probably live here, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Right now it's really just coming down to money. The the housing yeah. market is so insane. I don't know how it is up in Canada, but here in the States, it's just ridiculous. I mean, Montana used to be a place where you could get a, a house or some land for something reasonably affordable. The areas we want to be in in Montana now, the median house is half a million bucks. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not feasible for kids who are living in their vehicle making YouTube videos, you know, yet, I don't know, who knows, maybe, maybe one day we'll strike it seriously rich and be able to buy a half a million dollar <laughs> home, but it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. And unless the market changes, I mean, yeah, we're not going to be moving anywhere. We're just going to be staying in the van. Yeah. I, we always joke that we have no plan B. So like we can go live with Chase's folks in Montana, I guess. Um, that's sort of like the plan B, but <laughs> until we have enough money saved, uh, I mean, we would love to buy land and build a small house. So that's, that's sort of the dream. And when we started looking in Montana, it was affordable and we found places that were like five acres for 25 K and that seemed totally doable. And by the time we made it out here, like what, four or five years later, it just t- totally changed the market. So we're, we're open. We're always looking. You know. <laughs> well, yeah, there's definitely some of that uh, market stress here up in Canada with the, the housing uh, going up as well. And yeah. f- folks not necessarily seeing the increases on the paycheck either. So yeah. um, YouTube wise, though, I did hear that there's some kid doing well, just opening toys and reviewing them. So you, oh, you yeah. might want to just like shift focus a little. And, like, <laughs> we I have know. considered like maybe just making cat videos. You know, we have a cat and he's pretty great. So oh, like maybe we should shift. Yeah, we might head in that else. direction soon too. So <laughs> just watch out. Um, well, you guys made it through the five burners. So congratulations. It's uh, Yeah, it's, got- I think we were closer to that half an hour yeah. mark. <laughs> we tend, we tend to ramble a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's all good. That's all good. We got some good stories out of there too. So that's great. Um, we'll, we'll get into some of the more like modern filmography and stuff and what's going on for tight loops soon. But I think... Uh, Chaser, correct me if I'm wrong here. We're always curious about like, how did folks get to where they're at now? Like what, obviously fly fishing, at least for you, Chase, is, has run in the family a long time. Uh, but there's also this really creative side to both of you two I've seen, or uh, at least you could see uh, the culmination of it now. Like what was the kind of journey that led up to tight loops and what did that look like? Well, um I guess the the journey kind of twists and turns a little bit, but we both, I would say, were sort of reared as artists in one way or another. We both attended art school for college education. I dropped out after a year. Yeah, but... Amy, Amy didn't finish, <laughs> but I finished. And um, I entered college uh, with a portfolio based in illustration. Um, I wanted to be a fine artist in some way professionally at the time when I was 17 or 18, which... I don't know, 
nobody knew what they wanted to do. But I thought I wanted to be a fine artist. And now I sort of am a fine artist in a roundabout way. But when I entered uh, college, I was making skateboard videos um, almost full time at a sort of like semi-professional level. Um, and I was doing that. So I was basically out all night, every night filming skating and then trying to balance school doing something else. So I, I decided that it was just a good idea to consolidate what I was doing in school. So I, I majored in film animation and video. Um, before that, I, I wouldn't say like I had aspirations as a filmmaker. I was just sort of the, in my group of friends growing up skating, I was the one who had access to a camera. And because I sort of have a creative mind, I became good at shooting video. But um, yeah, so I, I sort of did the the four years of school learning how to be a professional filmmaker and I entered the industry and film and television and two years in I just hated everyone and everything I was doing a little bit of it was sort of college burnout from just art critique and all that kind of stuff I don't know it's kind of a strange contradiction that art education as a way of sort of stifling creativity um but so part of it was just fatigue from years of being on that track. And the other part of it was that the film world is just kind of, I don't know, it's overly self-important or something. I just didn't like the people I was working with or the stuff that I was doing. Um, so I quit that cold turkey and just went into construction with a friend of mine who I knew. Um, he was a concrete worker and a skateboarder and they were building skate parks. And that was sort of like the entry into it. But then I ended up doing masonry repair on all these historic brick buildings in new england for like the better part of five years and just like completely dropped all creative uh, endeavors i sold all my cameras i didn't own anything to paint or draw with and i just didn't do anything creative but just like work a nine to five blue collar folks um drink beer at night go to bed that was kind of like that was the whole deal um and when i met amy through the sort of skateboarding punk community and Providence, Rhode Island, where I was living. That's also where I went to school. Um, and we started dating. Amy was an active artist. I mean, she was she worked a nine to five too, but she was doing more creative work than I was. She was a printmaker and a painter. And um, I just sort of got re-sparked by just sort of seeing creativity in a fresh light with someone new that I was interested in, that we were dating. And um, that oh yeah, I was doing like little tattoo style paintings and Chase would always try to buy my paintings and trying to win me over by huh. buying my artwork. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just sort of one of those things where like I just had to find my way back to it in my own time, you know, and just being able to like see art and creative work in a new light um, just got me re-energized on it. And I've been fishing and in the outdoors since I was a little kid my family's from Montana that's just like in the blood it's I tell people it's like soccer in Brazil or something you, know, you don't even have a choice whether or not you grow up fly fishing <laughs> so you know I was I was doing that stuff um and Amy started to get interested in it um and as we would go out fishing and doing stuff together and I was just sort of feeling creatively inspired um the natural progression was just to sort of like buy a camera and start documenting the stuff we were doing and yeah, it's kind yeah. of evolved organically from there. The, um, did Amy's heel flip attract you to the the whole situation? <laughs> oh, you are very much overestimating my skateboarding abilities. <laughs> That's not what makes him love me. It's just that I skateboard in general. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say that I am a talented skateboarder, but I have 
passion for it. Um, and it's something that, yeah, yeah certainly right. brought us together. Amy, Amy, <laughs> Amy rips. Amy's got good style. She can't heal for it, but she's still got good yeah. style. Uh, that's good. Well, so you got skateboarding you can do together. You got the art. And then on top of it, you got uh, the fly casting too. So that's that seems like a pretty um, dynamic relationship. And then, so tight, tight loops really started to take form, I'm, I'm guessing. And then you, you got a whole series out now at this point in time. Um, was there a point where you started figuring out that it, like there was some momentum behind what you were doing with the, with the camera and the, the stories you were telling? Well, certainly in the beginning, it was just making videos that we wanted to make and didn't have a whole lot of traction. But uh, I feel like Orvis... The company, the uh, they took interest in us pretty early on, which was kind of surprising. And they were super supportive, being like fellow New England-based company. They were really passionate about supporting uh, local artists, and that gave us uh, probably a confidence boost. Maybe gave us some bigger ideas too. Yeah, well, I would say this in that um, because we're you know we're in our early coming up on our mid thirties, we're yeah, this sort of like say early thirties. <laughs> we're, we're of a millennial generation that we grew up before social media and readily accessible smartphones and all, all this kind of stuff. So like the, our drive to make stuff didn't come, the idea that you could be successful at it didn't mm -hmm. come first. Yeah. We, we were interested in doing stuff because we just have a compulsion to make stuff because that's what turns our gears. You know, we're creative people. Um, so we certainly didn't start making videos thinking, oh, this is an avenue for success. We yeah. just made videos because we just were, we just wanted to make videos. And because I've been making videos for years, I was just sort of used to like, well, when you finish something, you just like put it out there so that you can share it with people and whatever. And certainly we're not like, this isn't the beginning of YouTube or anything. When we started releasing videos in like circa 2013, 2014 the youtube certainly wasn't what it is now you know um and i think we started on vimeo which is even you know smaller yeah. at the time but yeah um, orbis the their blog picked up pretty much like i think the first video we ever put out like within a week of putting it out they yeah. picked it up and, and posted it on their blog and, um, yeah it caught us by surprise so it was a yeah a and, I, and I, I i still wouldn't say that have that having happened we weren't like oh man we gotta like really focus on this because it could be something yeah. but it certainly it was just looks cool like to have a brand like that pay attention to that video and, and mm -hmm. have nice things to say about it and i mean we made what like four or five other videos after that that i didn't, I didn't kind of a similar i didn't get that deep but what was the first video that orvis well, picked up I don't know. Are they available anywhere anymore? They're a little bit. It's because, a little top secret now. Because are they underground? Are they underground? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they are. Because of a, a Vimeo, <laughs> I wouldn't call it a Vimeo dispute, but uh, we, a financial decision. We we downgraded our like pro account on Vimeo, which we had to sell the film Big Land through their on-demand platform, um, and it's pretty expensive a year it's not other but it's like 500 bucks a year or something to have a you know business level account with vimeo um and the film stopped generate after a while the sales stopped generating enough revenue that it made sense to keep it anymore um so we we downlisted our account status and when you do that they essentially they delete 
everything but the most recent 20 gigs you've uploaded or something. And the most recent 20 gigs was Big Land and Big Land had to come down anyway. So everything that we'd ever had on Vimeo all got removed Jeez. from our account. So um, yeah, those are underground now. They only exist somewhere on an ancient hard drive of mine because we never uploaded them to YouTube either. They only lived on Vimeo. But I, I think the video was just us fishing in the fall in Connecticut, yeah, maybe on the Farmington River. It was, you know, the-, the They early, were like fishing music videos. Yeah, so. they were sort of like, kind of like a skateboard video. It was just sort of like musical montage, you know, images to sound and that's it. There wasn't really a narrative component or anything like that. And this was also in like more of the wild west of the internet days where you could just like use whatever music you want and there was no copyright claims or so anything. it's like um, a lot country, old blues tracks and nice. like music oh. that we really connected with. And yeah, that was sort of like our, our base. Of yeah, and I think that probably helped generate an audience to um, at least a particular audience who like could who were into like the whole aesthetic you know of the music and the imagery and what we were doing it's a little more challenging now that we've gone legit you know we gotta <laughs> you know like make, pay make, for music yeah make sure that we're you know using licensed music or royalty free yeah. music yeah. You, you can't be quite as free as an artist to like really represent things the way you want to represent, but you know, it is what it is. Everyone's going to do it. Yeah. You're too mainstream now. You got to yeah. answer to the yeah. A&R people. Yeah. I know it's awful. Maybe, <laughs> if, maybe if there's a feature space there, that'd be a good throwback Thursday. Oh gosh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could, I could find the uh, hard drives. Yeah. But you know, the, uh, every now and again, I'll still get hard headed enough about, I really want to use you know, X song in this piece, like in Big Land, we have a song by a band called Deer Tick. Um, we're a pretty popular, like indie band. Um, but I know, I have friends who are good friends with the people in that band. I know them sort of by one degree of separation. I was like, I bet you I could like sweet talk my way into getting this, you know, for free or for really cheap. And like the friend rate that I ended up getting was still like $1,500 or something to use it, you know, which like we That's make- Oh, that's a whole budget have, for a film yeah, for we us. We don't have like you know? budgets. We just typically go into debt with the films that we make, especially for larger projects, but they're passion projects. We get as much support as we can from sponsors. We do as much fundraising as we can, but um, yeah, that like, there's no budget really. Yeah. It's I mean, like... we, we're, we were, we ended up in the hole on that film. Yeah. So basically like that's $1,500 just straight out of our pocket, just because like, yeah. I, I didn't want my creative vision to be like, altered you know what i mean but it's yeah. really important though you know like yeah well you can take this however you want to but i am a little gas that you know like 1500 dollars is the totality of some of your budget for these films because looking at like one of them i think was 45 minutes and i was watching this thing and i'm just like i wonder how many hours they're 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 into this because we we know the video work is just so much oh more and and like i'm like this is really well cut and this is like, I'm looking at like all the transitions yeah. and I, I had Shazam out for some of the music and I'm like holding my phone up to the, the TV. <laughs> um, so like just really well done. And I, um, I'm shocked that, you know, like it, you, you're able to do it on that kind of shoestring kind of, um, well, well, remember what I said earlier about being a glutton for punishment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, big land, geez, how long did you edit that? It, that was our first really really big project we got a, a great amount of of 
crowd like fundraising for that project. Yeah, we kickstarted we kickstarted just... that project on on Kickstarter yeah. to raise money, and we raised what to us was like the most Insane. money we'd ever seen in our lives. We like raised 30, almost thirty thousand dollars, like twenty eight thousand oh, wow. dollars, and, and we went what ten k in debt on that. Yeah. Film? Wow. Yeah. Um, we like we don't get paid to do this stuff and i think that we get a lot of questions from people we get a lot of not a lot but like intern requests and and things like that and i think the quality of chase's work with the editing um coloring i mean he does he does everything and it takes it took you how long i mean that 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 trip was almost a year of planning logistics in and, general you know, at and least then, like six months of editing. and like he did not come out of that room it was like 14 plus hours a day I'd, after like it's time to eat like come on we get, like come out of the the studio uh yeah so it's it's just an an amount of time that would be really hard for us to even look at as like how much would it cost to make this film and i guess that's yeah it's they're all passion projects for us so yeah you know what the the, the biggest problem or maybe it's not a problem but the, the real issue is that we're just such reluctant business people because we're just mm -hmm. artists we just want to make art you know i don't want to have to sell myself i don't want to have to pitch projects i don't want to have to push numbers around trying to figure out how to fund it i just want to do it and it's so um tiring and exhausting to work the other side of it for people like us that a lot of times we just don't you know yeah. and we're like well screw it we'll just like we'll just burn through our own money because i don't want to have to spend three months writing emails and talking on the phone and trying to sell myself just please somebody give me money yeah please, i care about this know? project you know yeah um which is a fault of ours you know i think anyone who wants to be successful um on their own has to get good at this stuff eventually and we're getting better but it's taken a long time to get there because yeah i just can't imagine anything more painful than having to spend all this time doing that crap and all i want to do is just be making stuff yeah. you know what i mean i don't know if you guys can tell but chase is also very much an introvert um <laughs> which obviously <laughs> makes phone calls and emails and things like that a bit of a yeah. challenge uh, very, he's a reluctant, uh, emailer, I, phone call person. So I can definitely resonate with, uh, what Chase has shared there too. Cause I, I am definitely out of the, the triad or the trio that is within our business company here. I am probably the least business minded out of the mm -hmm. three. So, um, yeah, lots of anxiety around that kind of, yeah. um, that kind of the marketing and promotion yeah. sides for sure for me. Um, it's funny too, you mentioned the intern thing and I was sitting there watching the Death Valley uh, move, uh, clip or movie or um, mm -hmm. short, um, whatever you would classify episode. it as. Yeah, episode. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> it was eluding me. Thank you. Thank you for helping me. <laughs> um, first time on a podcast here. So, um, and I was sitting there as like a 35 year old man with a family at home and, uh, you know, a mortgage to pay. And I was, the I was asked myself like i wonder if i should intern for chase just looking at this, i was like i i have no idea how you would film this or cut this but like man did it come come together really beautifully so um 
unfortunately i can't offer that right now but um it uh <laughs> yeah, I, keep I, think, mind, man. I, think, <laughs> I mean certainly chase could could offer a lot to someone that wanted to intern we just get a lot of questions about like how do you guys do this for a living like it's so cool i want to do what you do and i think we always kind of laugh a little bit and not to like discourage anyone because you should always follow your dreams and and you just have to work really hard but I mean, we make a living, I guess you could call it that doing what we do and we make it doing creative work. And a lot of times it's picking up other projects. And I, up until this year, used to shoot a lot of weddings to support us, but it depends on like what you look at as a living. Like we make a very humble amount of money, but we're able to support ourselves and live the lifestyle that we want to live. But like we live in a van. Uh, so mm -hmm, right. <laughs> I think it's always kind of surprising to us when people are like, man, I want to do what you do. Like you're living the dream and like, yeah. definitely like no complaints, like yeah. super, super lucky and thankful to live the life that we live and do the work that we do. But I think the idea that like, we're just like making a killing off this stuff is just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of it is just sort of like the, the digital landscape we live in now where everyone sort of curates their online presence in a way where yeah i mean we're interested in telling stories that will inspire people to want to do stuff so you tell a bunch of inspiring stories and people watch them they go man these people's lives are just so inspiring all the time i never see anything bad on here you know but in reality everybody's got yeah. down days and stuff that sucks that they got to yeah. do and stuff that they're struggling with yeah. and i guess we're just as guilty of sort of like curating the nice stuff um we don't try we're not try and be like try and hide from our audience or anything we try and be like as honest in the way we represent yeah. ourselves but yeah when you the goal in the films is to sort of like to push a certain narrative that hopefully inspires viewers you know so viewers if they're inspired and they watch it and they're inspired by us they probably think that it's like just couldn't be more awesome to be us but everyone's got problems yeah, mm -hmm. yeah there's always you know yeah I'm, yeah go ahead chase i'm uh i'm super interested in, in talking about that that little like the transition there for you and i'm like i'm sure you get tons of comments like you kind of said there that you know how do you do it i want to do that like you're living the dream right so mm -hmm. how did that conversation go for you guys prior to like making the decision to head on the road and what was the plan like hitting the road was it just let's make some kick-ass fishing videos and adventure videos and we'll figure it out from there or did you guys yeah. have a bit of like an income plan to uh oh <laughs> keep everything afloat kind of thing yeah no it we was are, total seat of our pants. yeah we're very much like a winging it kind of couple um there's never really much of a plan on, to be totally honest and when we decided to move into the van it was it was sort of a I don't remember all the details but just sort of a, a thought at first and then it became more of a necessity uh, my we lived in an apartment that my parents owned in New England and you know through that we were able to save some money and pay discounted rent which was great and we had a lot of you know my parents owned it. So we had chickens, we had a backyard, we had gardens because like gardening and, and horticulture is my other background and love. So we were able to do a lot of cool stuff in that space. But then once we were faced with the idea of renting some other apartment somewhere else, it became very much like, I let's move into the van and just give this a shot. And 
yeah, there hasn't really been a whole lot of planning ever. Uh, it was just sort of like get in the van and we'll just work it out. And it certainly comes with a pile of other stresses, but, um, I guess the main objective was to save money and try to buy land at some point, um, which, you know, we're still two years into still just yeah, trying to save the, money and, and buy land. I think the, the cliche of the starving artist is a cliche for a reason, right? Because artists are just kind of like hyper-focused on just like making art, making their work, uh, which I think has been our primary focus always. And we were both pretty resourceful at just like squeezing by on the bare necessities, you know? Um, so initially, yeah, we just kind of like thought one project ahead or one step ahead was just mm -hmm. like, if we can just like scrounge up enough money to like go do this thing, you know, like go drive out West and like make a video out of it. Um, then like, that'll be really awesome. And then like, what happens yeah. next? I don't know, but like, at least we'll have made that, that video. Yeah. I mean, there was never, especially early on, there was never a promise of any sort of return on any of the videos yeah, they were all just because yeah. we wanted to do it and we were you know inspired to to make these things and um i'd say big land was the first time that we had such a big amount of logistical planning a huge investment i mean the flights for us to get into the the wilderness out there were 1400 14k so like knowing yeah, that we were going to be investing that much money into it was the first time that we had to get a little bit more savvy about sponsors and support for the project. But even on the back end, you know, like we went into debt with that project and we didn't know that there would be much of a return. And really it's like every time someone rented or bought a copy of Big Land, like we saw that and we celebrated those moments. Um, and it did better than we expected it to do. And, and we've sort of just gained momentum from there. But yeah, there's never a promise of a financial return, at least. Yeah, I mean, the, the goal just always has been and still is to just like put out the best stuff that you can. And I think we're firm believers that if you make qual a quality product, yeah. the, the people will come. You know, it's just been a really slow um, road to get there because we're just, like I said, we're not, we're not pushy people marketing wise, yeah. you know, we, we don't, we don't really want to wake up every day and be like, how can we maximize our mm -hmm. this and mm -hmm. how can we do that? It's just like, I just want to wake up and just like make work I'm proud of. And if I put it out there and it's good like people will respond to it and eventually all the other bits will start falling into place. And they're just sort of now starting to fall into place to the point where like, we're still always stressed financially. But if I look, if I go back in a time machine to myself five years ago, I would look at where we are now financially. And at, at the time I thought that like, that was a goal to get there, yeah. you know? So like, like I can sort of step back and realize that like we're doing the right we're doing thing, okay. we're doing okay, but it's still we're still not at the point yet where yeah. we can just like totally breathe. You know? But we're also completely unwilling to compromise our vision for brands and companies too. So we've been yeah, super point. lucky to have sponsors on board that fully support us and give us full creative control. Like they trust us and they just let us do our thing and they're they're just psyched on what we're doing and. I think that has a lot to do with slower growth on our end because we are reluctant. Like we only work with companies or brands that we 
support and feel super passionate about and use their products and, and can, you know, give our endorsement. So it makes for a limited like pool of people to work with, but I just think we wouldn't have it any other way, but it also builds trust with the folks that follow us and enjoy our work too. All right, guys, if you've been listening to this podcast for long, you know that iHunter has been a supporter of this podcast and us here at Panoramic Outdoors. You also know that iHunter is one of our favorite tools that we have in our pack, in our pocket, actually, every time we hit the field. And uh, not only is it in our pocket, but it's literally everywhere we go with us because it's on our phone. And if you don't know what iHunter is, head over to iHunter.com or download the app on your phone. iHunter is Canada's all-in-one hunting app, providing you with high-quality satellite imagery on your phone everywhere you go. Um, Beyond that, they have instant messaging, so you can message your buddies, current weather forecasts, waypointing, tracking, public land maps, landowner maps, and everything you need in a mapping device. Throw the old GPS, in the bin and uh, everything you need is literally on your phone with this app if you're interested in getting some public land maps for a discount head over to the website web.ihunterapp.com type in the promo code panoramic30 for 30% off your first public land purchase check them out now you won't regret it I wanted to share that uh, on on the vision side of things, you definitely fooled me with the the lack of plan, as you say, and I, I still don't completely buy it, um, <laughs> in in that sense. But um, when when I especially thinking even just about the the Death Valley trip, like I was, what drew me in was the 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 vision and the like the imagery and just the 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 shots that you're able to capture that I I knew in my mind I wouldn't even. Um, think of capturing those shots so those are those are right in your face and really tell a story right then and there but when i step back and look at the series as a whole um targeting rare trout you get to tell this really cool story that puts you in really really interesting ecological places and to me it gets to to, it gets you to a spot where you get to tell us a conservation story that's very not only unique but almost like a uh you know like the apex example of why we need to be conservationists or what's important about conservation and and in our society um so to me that that's um speaks loads about the vision of what's going on with tight loops and i'm just curious as to where this philosophy comes from within within the company like i can tell that there's lots of thought that goes into into the the not just the the shots but the messages of the of the 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 episodes so like and it even even within the words too there's very thoughtful analysis of um you know why we're here and what we're doing um can you can you say what that's grounded in or where where you're drawing that from yeah i mean it's definitely this series is definitely like my pet brainchild series um and I think the drive for the overall message of the series um, has been a really natural evolution of doing this stuff in general. So, you know, our first videos that we put out were pretty 
fluff in that they're just sort of like pretty images and fishing and whatever. I, I think, you know, being someone who's been in the outdoor and ecological conservation space for decades, um, anyone who takes this stuff seriously kind of can't help but be introspective and think about it when it's something that's important to you. I guess that's true with anything in life. It doesn't have to be the outdoors. I just happen to have sort of built my life in the outdoors. So it's something that I'm thinking about all the time. Um, and at some point it just didn't feel like enough to just make fishing videos for the sake of making fishing videos, you know, as, as somebody with like, especially with a fine arts educational background, I'm always asking like, why am I making something, you know, what, who is this serving and what is it serving? And like, what's the point if I'm going to make this and put it out there? What, what, what am I doing with it? What is it doing for the world? What am I trying to say to people? And honestly, what I'm interested in saying to people isn't just like fishing super fun because it's exciting or whatever. So like, this is me fishing everyone, you know, even though that stuff is true and you can enjoy the outdoors on a, a totally simple and visceral level like that, that doesn't have to be super heady and you don't have to be thinking about all these sort of bigger ecological concepts. But it's just sort of a, an extension of the type of person I am. I kind of do overanalyze everything all the time. And we live in a really sort of precarious point in human history when it comes to the way we're interfacing with the natural world. Um, it just kind of felt like if you're not telling the story that you want to be telling, that you think is an important story to tell, and like, why are you telling any story at all? You know? Um, yeah, it, it just got to the point where I just didn't see the point in making videos that weren't at least trying to poke at something bigger. Um, and yeah, my, the, the evolution of the sort of like ecological ideology that you see in this stuff um, is from a sort of movement of um, ecologists in the last 60, 70 years, you know, starting with Aldo Leopold and so on. Anyone who's sort of in the like hunting fishing community is probably aware of a lot of this ethos and ethic. Um, but especially I think with the explosion in social media, um, there's tons of new people entering um, the outdoor recreation space who probably aren't as easily exposed to this kind of material. Um, and I'm hoping to just sort of like counteract that a little bit for a younger generation, you know, who maybe didn't grow up learning to fish or hunt with their dad who gave them books to read about, you know, the outdoors. They're just like seeing big fish on Instagram or whatever. And that's sort of like the surface level that they're interacting with a resource. I'm just hoping to continue the tradition of people who are, who are pushing bigger ideas about how we uh, interface with the natural world responsibly. There does seem to be, and we've commented on it before, this almost thematic shift occurring in some of the outdoor media where um, it's starting to focus less on like lip and rips and grip and grins. Mm -hmm. um, I know we grew up in an era where, you know, that was the dominant, dominant um, kind of outdoor media yeah. style. And um, I, I don't know if you guys would have seen the the film, oh, Chase, what's that, Chaser, what's that film um, that we used to watch for snowboarding all the time? Um, the Art of Flight. But for mm -hmm. me, for me, that was a, a almost like a, a watershed moment in the sense that like, 
not just for snowboarding, but in, uh, in the hunting world, we saw videos like the linguists come out, um, which shifted like kind of the tone of the narrative that was being told around the, the hunting story, or you notice that things could be shot in different ways. It didn't have to be this kind of like, um, almost sitcom style, um, uh, yeah. ca- camera work. Um, do you, do you think you're kind of fitting part of that, you know, part of that flow or are you, are you almost the, the punk rock um, of the, the outdoor media world here? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I definitely hear what you're saying about the sort of like the pendulum swing in general. I think this is true, not just in media, but this is true in um, management as well. You know, the, the focus um, even in outdoor management is shifting in serious ways in the last like decade or two. Like if we're talking about fish, the focus on native wild species is well uh or so much more closely or highly focused on now than 10 years ago when it was just about like stocking giant non-native fish and dumping them in for fishing and the whole yeah the ecological ethos i think is shifting and i'm happy to be a part of that and um i'm just a person existing out here in the world subject to the forces of change as much as anyone else like my own personal journey is certainly part of that as well um but I don't know that there's, yeah, there aren't a ton of other independent fishing filmmakers who are quite on the same trip that we're on right now. We're like going pretty hard on it. <laughs> um, I, I'd say like I mean, the, obviously not nearly in terms of success, um, but I'd say like the counterpart in hunting is, you know, like the whole meat eater zone with Stephen Ranella is pushing these types of um, ideas into the hunting space. And I think the way Ranella revolutionized hunting media is something that we hope to be a part of in fishing media. But I don't want to sound too grandiose because we're just like tiny little people compared to the empire that meat eaters built over the uh, last decade. But mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I Yeah. And so I was specifically, maybe not specifically, but could see how meat eater definitely fits into that theme um i'm gonna ask it yeah i i I was there was a conservation question i did i i don't want to dive too deep down the conservation rabbit hole but i was gonna ask this in another podcast but i shied away from it but i think you two might have an interesting take on it i've been batting around in my own mind often conservation gets framed in a term terms of like there's almost like a um commodification of the wildlife that, that are out there like if they're not if they don't have a dollar value assigned to them they're essentially worthless um uh you can think of like they call them rough fish in in the fishing industry yeah. right mm-hmm. um something doesn't sit right about that to me though I, I worry that if we commodify species that we lose out on not only their inherent value but that there's it doesn't accurately reflect what the natural world actually um exists as so I guess I'm answering my own question, but I'm wondering if you have thoughts on like, is there, are there perils to viewing conservation in that, in that lens? Like, Hey, this, this animal has to be worth something. Otherwise, um, you know, it might not be on the list kind of. Totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, and it's a great question. And I think that that's, that's sort of the point of the series for wild sake. It's right there in the title, right? I mean, wild just for the sake, for wild sake, you know, but it's certainly, we're trying to ask questions about, what gives something value and how do we as people assign value at all? What even is value? 
you know, the, the whole idea of value exists entirely within the human world. The natural world doesn't have the same ideas of value any more than anything. Everything is equal, you know, especially in um, complicated, interconnected ecological webs. You know, the smallest component can topple the entire system. Um, and yeah, so the the American model of wildlife conservation, right, is like considered to be the best that we've ever had, right? It's what like certainly coming out of the early 1900s, market hunting and market fishing, devastation of wildlife, devastation of um, habitat. We now have this value-based system and it certainly has like helped certain species flourish um, and certain places flourish, but you're right in that it's not balanced. You know, there's, there's no, there's no more value to a wild trout than there is to a minnow species that nobody wants to catch. You know what I mean? So the value, I think there is peril in placing value purely from a consumptive view. And even if it's catch and release fishing, it's still consumptive. Um, mm -hmm. I would like to think that everything in the natural world has inherent value and we're not capable of dissecting the complexities of that. Um, so we don't, we don't have the ability to know what's important and what's not important in an ecological sense. And anytime we try and make a call about that, we inevitably screw something up um, by thinking that we can understand it. Um, it's taken millions and millions and millions of years to perfect the system the way that nature has perfected it. And it's so far beyond our grasp as humans that like, it feels like any attempt to try and get a handle on that is fraught with peril from the start because we inevitably don't know what we're doing and we're going to get it wrong. And it's going to have some rippling effect that we won't understand for a hundred years. You know, um, it's funny. Uh, we're working on an episode right now about a species of trout called the Apache trout in the Southwestern desert in, in Arizona. Um, and it's got its name, the Apache trout from the Apache tribe, um, which are an indigenous culture native to this region in the Southwest. And 30 years before the Endangered Species Act, which is sort of the primary tool now used to conserve imperiled species in the United States, um, the tribe closed all of the streams that had Apache trout to fishing in perpetuity, 30 years before the Endangered Species Act even existed. Um, and that was a thing that people were talking about. And it just sort of shows a difference in, a cultural difference in the way that they value natural resources. And even the word resources is complicated, you know, but that, and they closed it to fishing for everybody, for indigenous members, for non-indigenous members. Nobody can touch those fish because they have cultural and spiritual importance to us as people, and they're better served being alive than used in some way, you know? And I think that that, even today, would be controversial um, to the general public, where people would say, well, what good is it if you can't eat it and you can't catch it? I mean, who cares? <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Who cares if that fish dies anyway? Just stock it with rainbow trout. They'll survive just fine in there. And it's just some other fish, you know, what's so important about this, but it, it just shows that there are, there is a worldview that can encompass the intrinsic value of wild things that doesn't have to have a dollar figure on it right now. Yeah. The dollar figure deal is sort of the best system we got, but I like to 
envision a world where there's a more enlightened way of thinking about it because we're so irrevocably connected to the natural world Our, everything that makes human beings human beings and happy and healthy is dependent entirely on the natural world and the natural world works best when its systems are intact and we're part of those systems i think you know where for thousands of years the western world has been trying to figure out ways to break out of that system and separate ourselves from it but um i don't think that that's ever going to be true so we have to we have to develop a value system that recognizes that we're intrinsically connected to the natural world so anything that harms some butterfly somewhere in a forest will never visit is eventually going to have a ripple effect that comes back to you know your mental health in detroit or whatever <laughs> you know it, the, the thing we can't separate the two um, in any meaningful way so yeah sorry that's a really rambling answer and obviously as i'm sure I, I can tell that you're thinking about this kind of stuff too um it's complicated and messy and, and difficult to pin down you know yeah, it lands you in this really odd paradox, I find, where you you want to act as a good conservationist, a, uh, you want to tread lightly, and you want to do the right thing, um, but at the same time, you have to kind of recognize your own limitations, right? So it's, it seems like this weird balance between, like, how do, how do I actually improve the situation without... Um, you know, is it better to to restock these trout, or is it better to reintroduce right. this extirpated species into into the landscape um, without knowing all those steps ahead of you? Right. So it's kind of it, it is complicated and right. You get into weird weird messy situations too. I was just talking. Um, I was doing an interview with a guy named James Prosek, who's a, a famous naturalist and uh, artist. He's done a lot of work in he, the book Trout of Trout Around the World or something. He did like a full encyclopedia of all uh, trout species. Anyway, uh, he's working on a piece. He's writing a piece for National Geographic about Atlantic puffins um, up on the main coast. And there's a, a small island off the coast, I think if I'm remembering correctly, that's um, puffins have been extirpated from you know, some 80 years ago. And they're, they're looking to reintroduce puffins there. And in the meantime, without puffins, all sorts of other bird species, primarily gulls, um, because they're so um, opportunistic, have sort of filled the ecological niche that the puffins left behind. And so in the interest of bringing puffins back to this place, they're going to kill, they're going to wipe out all the existing birds. Um, and, you know, it's not the gulls fault that they're industrious and we're able to fill this niche. But human beings are making a judgment call that like, well, we think this one species is more valuable than this other species. And it's not even like people stocked the gulls there. I mean, the, the decline in puffins is probably related to human development in some way. But still, you're, you're making a call that like, I don't know that the natural world uh, is weighing the same metrics, you know what I mean, that we are it's <laughs> in so that situation. Yeah, it's so it's so complicated. Everyone at the end of the day is just trying to do what they think is best, but yeah. We're sort of, uh, it seems like people are too big for their britches. Uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like I said, we understand so little about the complexity of the natural world that anytime we're trying to fiddle with it, even if what we think we're fiddling with is an attempt to somehow put it back right, we're making mistakes when we're doing that too. 
because it's just so far above our heads, you know. Mm-hmm. That that brings me back to for a while's sake a little, and I'm thinking about like one of the earlier ones I watched, which was the the main fishing trip, mm-hmm. and uh, they they essentially killed the whole pond there to to mm-hmm. reintroduce char. Um, first of all, I was again shocked to to know that there was char in uh, in Maine, like that was not on my radar. So like immediately, I was drawn into this. Um, but I gotta ask Amy too, like um, just extremely unique fishing trip, and they they even you even said in the in the film there too that it was um, they don't advertise it particularly well because it it is such a rare experience, but what was it like hooking up on that first char? Like, obviously there was some mystery cause it was coming up from the depths, oh, yeah. right? I would have been like, this has got to be a pike or, or something of that. <laughs> yeah. Nature. I mean, the way that you fish for them is so different than your traditional fly fishing method anyway. So you're like, well, this isn't going to work. Like this is just weird. So you're like fishing in super deep water and you're stripping upwards in the water and you're thinking, I mean, gosh, how long did we fish before we caught one? um yeah hours yeah hours so you're like this is just never gonna work and then when you actually feel something on the end there it's a total rush um chaos in the boat everyone's excited and yelling and and you're just hoping you don't lose it but seeing that fish for the first time was just unreal like i couldn't believe that something living in deep water and like seeing the dark water and like absence of color and then seeing this bright orange yellow fish come out was just like I don't know it was it was a really really unique really fun experience and I feel very lucky to have have even been able to catch as many fish as we did because there are plenty of people that we talked to that were guests at the lodge that had been coming there for years and years and talk about how this is my year I'm going to catch one and they've been trying for years so um yeah we felt pretty pretty lucky yeah I mean I I chalk that up to Amy's chops as an angler, but yeah, no one else was catching anything. Her and I both caught fish, but yeah, lots nice. of people try for a long time and don't get any. Did Did you think you were going to lose it? Because that would have gone through my mind at least six times as I was stripping uh, I mean, this thing I think that I always am worried about that, but I, my success rate for landing a fish is a little bit better than Chase's. I don't know <laughs> what that is, but I think he just gets like way too too amped maybe i'm like a little bit more calm about the process but he's lost a lot of fish and it has ended in a lot of heartache but okay. um, i'm definitely in chase's yeah. camp then <laughs> <laughs> we're always like please 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 make it to the make it to the the real make it to the boat you know well and you want to talk about uh conservation and i mean nothing's more complicated as somebody who considers themselves fish advocates um, and conservation advocates to walk the weird line of like trying to make films about fishing. Um, yeah. it, it makes me think about it when you're saying like, oh, we're going to lose the fish, we're going to lose the fish. And not only is there that tension of like, am I going to land the fish, which is a tension anyone has when they're out fishing because, you know, you've got a tiny little piece of metal with a fine little piece of monofilament <laughs> connecting you to a, a wild thing, you know, that yeah. um, people lose fish all the time. But then there's also this added pressure of like, well, we're making this video too. So like, we really got to land the fish so we can get it on video. And oh, now we've landed it. Well, we really got to get some good shots of it. But oh, like, at, at what like, expense? Get it back in the water mm-hmm. immediately. Right, yeah. What's, <laughs> be very careful about the way that we handle it. What's the cost to the animal if, you know, it's taking longer to get it settled in the net so you can get the footage or the pictures that you need? Um, 
And then, yeah, you can start weighing even more complicated metrics of like, oh, well, what if you are making a film about a rare species and you overhandle a fish for a little while, but the film is going on to garner a bunch of interest in the species at large, which could lead to, you know, a new generation of conservationists who 100 years from now end up saving that fish from extinction. Is it worth the death of one fish? I don't know. Not that I'm saying this has ever happened, but it's the kind of metrics that like, <laughs> <laughs> when you when you start thinking yeah. like a conservationist, when at the end of the day, you're taking you're taking something from the environment that you aren't necessarily giving back, you know, and we all have to like justify how much we're willing to take and how we can try and give back to keep that in balance. Um, mm -hmm. And it's complicated. I don't know that we have the right answers either, you know, but it's certainly something that's like a topic that's on a lot of people's minds now, especially with the uh, evolution of social media oh, and grins by the hundreds of yeah. thousands now, you know, I mean, how is it, how is that treating the resource and how is even just like, well, catch and release fishing in general and like harassing these fish. And yeah. And how is even like, gosh, I don't know. It's just so complicated because on the one hand, fishing, hunting, outdoor use is this thing that's brought tremendous meaning to our lives and guided us to become the adults that we are today. And I think that that's really meaningful. And I want to encourage as many people as I can to participate in that also. But you can't encourage everyone to do it because the resources can't sustain that level of traffic, mm -hmm. you know? So like, yeah, are you contributing? Are you helping? You know, I don't have yeah. the answer. <laughs> We're all doing our best. But. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing like most worthy pursuits, there's a lot of gray involved. Yeah. And if you're thinking about it, you're probably better off than if you were just maybe, we'll say harvesting without reflection. Right. So, right. Yeah. Cause that, I mean, it's the thing we, for example, more so in the hunting community, cause it's entirely consumptive, whereas, you know, there's much, much more, uh, there's no hunting, hunt and release. It, uh, no, but you want <laughs> to encourage it's a sustainable um healthy lifestyle you want to encourage people but we all know that not everyone can take wild game there's not enough wild game to go around so like where's the number how many people need to be hunting how many people yeah. shouldn't be hunting yeah six six is a yeah. number yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah well and then there's the whole then there's the whole world of like secret spots and like don't tell people because you want you selfishly want like just your experience to be really good but you don't want other people's like you're somehow entitled to the better hunting or fishing than anyone else is you know i don't know Sorry, you really <laughs> there's a lot of rabbit holes yeah, yeah. too many there there's yeah. a lot of stuff there and i think <clears throat> i think um a lot of the stuff that you're talking about really reflects on conversations we need to have as just human beings on earth and it's not necessarily that everybody has to be on the same page doing one thing working towards the same goal um say like you like hockey and somebody else likes gymnastics or something like that you know what i mean yeah. and it's like as long as we're not doing stuff that hurts the other's interests or passions or whatever that's fine as long as you know everyone else is, has those those groups and they're happy like that like What's the big deal? You know what I mean? If, the, yeah. if if that space can exist where as outdoors folks, you know, we, we have a, a good amount of, of folks there. We have our advocacy. We have our conservation groups and all that. Then um, what else do we need, right? Yeah. And I think that's the goal of our series too, is really just to encourage the conversations. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, I think a lot of the conversations 
that happen within hunting and fishing are bogged down in the weeds over really unimportant stuff, you know, like fly fishing versus gear fishing or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, some, some hunting technique versus another hunting technique. And like outside of hunting and angling in the conservation community, the wildlife conservation community at large, which, you know, I think as much as hunters and anglers want to build themselves up to be like the greatest force in conservation, we're not really. There's a whole other world of people out there um, interested in environmental advocacy and conservation. Then the conversations that they're having about hunting and fishing are very different than the conversations that we're having about hunting and fishing. We're just trying to encourage people to, to think about bigger ideas outside of where to, how to tackle use, you know, what gun you use, whatever. We're, we're trying to encourage people to have, to think big about the resource that they're involved in because there's real consequences to all of it, you know? Yeah. I'm glad I didn't ask the gear question. So everyone just go buy an Orvis rod and you should be fine. But um, <laughs> yeah. I, I get where you're coming from too. And like one of our good friends too came on the show, uh, Paul McCartney's like an ethicist and he, you know, he cites very clearly that, you know, we, as hunters and anglers, we probably need to broaden our conversation to be more inclusive of folks like outside of our immediate circle to see what those commonalities are. So we're actually um, advocating from a true true space of conservation which is you know i think an important conversation to have too um i do have to tell you a story about the char though because they're a they're such a beautiful fish but that's what connected us and um our our good buddy and friend of the show here uh tim is his name he did a few trips up to northwest territories and uh he just loves fishing for char He, he says he's only caught one i don't know if that's true but um they're just, they're such a stunning fish and it comes through so clearly on the, on the, the main fishing trip as well. Just those colors are just unbelievable, but he landed up buying one of your prints there, uh, chase mm. the blue back and mm-hmm. he's got it hanging in his house. And that thing stopped me in my, I noticed it immediately. I was like, Hey, that's new. And it stopped me in my tracks. And I had to ask him where he got this thing from. He's like, Oh, I got this from this tight loops fly, uh, fly company, uh, <laughs> super nice people. So I started doing the old Google and, uh, you know, uh, that led me to some of the video work. And, uh, I said, we, we got to have these guys on the, on the show here. So, um, I needed to share that story just because I, a, I wanted to sh- uh, do a shout out to your art, but, uh, also just acknowledge that, the the char is a, a special species there as well too. Yeah. That's amazing. man. small world. Um, that's really cool. And yeah, shout out to your friend for, yeah, pa- supporting pa- small artists, patronizing yeah. us. Yeah, by yeah, shopping local, small artists. Well, maybe not local, but yeah, yeah, small yeah. definitely not local, Manitoba. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we 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 screw that up sometimes too. We uh, say shop local, even though we know we got listeners all all over the place. Oh. I need a clarifying question too. I was watching the Quebec trip, and there is there's a whole whack of fish being caught. I definitely noticed some brook trout. Was there a lake trout in the mix there too? Is did there I see was, a laker? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there was a big laker there. That was sweet. And then further on into the salmon species, uh, or, or I guess genus, I don't know. Salmon, Chase, you would know better than I how the the rankings work. Um, 
what kind of salmon were you targeting up there? Uh, those are all Atlantic salmon. Okay. Yeah, so that's the George River. Um, yeah, the only species of salmon available to the eastern seaboard of Canada is Atlantic salmon. I don't think, um, you know, here in the United States, well, I guess, yeah, the Great Lakes extend into Canada too. Here in the United States, we've got, we've introduced all sorts of shit all over the place here. And I mean, you can catch Pacific salmon, you know, New England or whatever. And then of course, obviously there's all the Pacific salmon that have been introduced to the Great Lakes that are now you know, self-sustaining. But I don't think up there in the wilderness of Canada, I don't think there's any introduced species anywhere. So it's all all natural. And you know, the only the only salmon species up there is Atlantic salmon. They have a they the incredible varied look um, from when they come in from the ocean and they're bright chrome colored. And then once they've spent some time in the rivers, they'll start to almost look like a big brown trout or something. They get these real uh, dark brown hues. But yeah, that, the George River fishery there's really incredible. I, I don't know because we haven't uh, fished for Atlantic salmon um, anywhere else in the world other than Atlantic Canada. And the, really just there on the George River, those are the first uh, Atlantic salmon that we have ever caught. I uh, mean, we've got some small landlocked ones yeah. before, but first genuine sea run Atlantic salmon, but they say that the fish in that river um, are stronger than fish in other rivers because I don't know how well we portrayed it in the film when they're coming down those rapids, but there's some really big, strong rapids in that river. And there where we're catching those fish is like 230 miles from the ocean or something that they've already made it up. And they've got like another 150 yeah. to go before they're where they're spawning. So they make this really incredible journey up this super powerful river. So they got these big tails and just huge rudder like tails and they're just all muscle um and yeah i guess that, you know that's what makes them so appealing to people as a sport fish because it's an unbelievable fight but even outside of that they're just kind of amazing to behold you know yeah. i definitely had anxiety watching you roll down that river in those canoes with the tillers and i was like yeah, yeah th <laughs> those are, that's some big chop that you're yeah. hitting there's not a there's not a lot of uh what what's the term for the bottom of the boat there? Uh, it's eluding me now. But there's there's Freeboard. not a lot of depth. Sorry, freeboard, freeboard. Yeah, there's not not a lot there. You're you're basically flat bottom into these rapids, and uh, you're gonna hope for the best. So, um, yeah. what kind of canoes were those though too? Because I think we might need those for a, a moose hunt that we're we're <laughs> planning in the near future. I'll see if I'm getting my pronunciation right on this, but it's atabiti atabiti co. At Atibiti, it's it's a it's a Canadian company. Yeah. A T I B I T I or something like we'll that. We'll leave it up to Surrey to sort that one out. So yeah, I, um, I have to like I have to see it to be honest. But yeah, th those are big. I don't know, twenty-two foot canoes or something with a flat back for the outboard yeah. motor. Awesome canoes, and man, those the guides up there, the way they handle the water is unreal. Yeah. Especially talented. The, the guy who who's was sort of in charge of showing us around the whole time we're up there. Pierre, who's the one of the two brothers who owns that lodge um he's blind in one eye too huh. um and so he's got no depth perception <laughs> yeah. and he navigates those rapids up and down with just like it one is. one hand on the motor and just kind of like looking at the scenery and stuff and like yeah yeah just like whipping around every day was action-packed adventure it That's, was it's one of the coolest special. things about getting to travel around and see places like that is meeting people who live it day in and day out and there's just some some real grit just some hard people who live in hard places like that that are just so amazing to watch in their element, you know. 
I think yeah. I think the proper pronunciation on that is Abitibi. Okay, so I'm <laughs> dyslexic, so if I'm like mixing <laughs> some letters up in there, yeah. Um, I often do that on the podcast as well, so it made me feel pretty good there for a second. Um, I got a couple more questions I want to ask you guys before we wrap up here. Um, man, it's already been almost an hour and a half, and I feel like I've been so engaged. Yeah. I feel like I can talk about awesome. the salmon for like a half an hour. It <laughs> um, was so fun. My first kind of question for you guys is you guys have been on this journey for quite a while and it was kind of like, uh, sounded like a gamble to get on the road and let's just figure it out. But what was the, like, was there ever a moment where you were like, all right, tight loops, this is it. This is how we're going to identify net for now on. Oh, um, well, I don't know that there's ever been a specific moment, but. You have a tight loops tattoo. We don't. (laughs) We don't. We've got a right? lot of other tattoos. Like, we don't? I don't think no we do. um, he's got some fish and some fly tying I've stuff. I've got a fly tying. He's been at it longer. Vice. I've got a so. brook trout. Um, I think that's actually all the fishy stuff. Yeah. Um, but most recently, I mean, we COVID changed the landscape of what freelance photography and video work looked like. We were doing a lot of weddings. Chase somewhat more reluctantly, you know, he was my assistant second shooter we did video work together for weddings but we've started to push away from that a little bit more which feels like a pretty big milestone at least for me um to to pursue more projects that are based in outdoor adventure films passion projects bigger projects more projects per year because the wedding industry the season for arctic exploration and northern canada and alaska and like a lot of the places we want to go and experience the weather window is small and weddings also kind of coincide with those weather windows and start to become a conflict so to be able to say we're going to do less of that work to enable us to do more of the work we want to do felt like a turning point Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's really just been in the past few months that that sort of became a reality. Yeah, I mean, so. I, I would say that pretty much as soon as we had the name Tight Loops, which I guess pretty much would coincide with like when we released our first videos, mm-hmm. in our heads, we were already like all in. We yeah. were we were like <laughs> drinking the same Kool-Aid that like I was talking about people who see our lives now on Instagram are like, wow, how'd you guys make it? You know, we were already there in our heads, but yeah, in reality, yeah. we weren't, we still had nine to five jobs yeah. Um, yeah. and we weren't there yet and i'd say that it felt like we were there probably when we were making the film the 2018 film big land which for any of your listeners who haven't um seen it or aren't familiar with our work we did a it was probably our most ambitious project at the time that we'd ever done we did a a really true wilderness expedition by canoe no access but by float plane in the heart of the labrador interior chasing after an old rumor of a sort of unknown uh Brook Trout River. Um, go watch that film. We're still very proud of that film. But, you know, like I said, we were able to raise all this money and we felt like we had this huge momentum and some big sponsors behind it. And then the dust sort of settled and we were like, oh, we're not actually rich and famous yet. Um, <laughs> which I we're think like, okay, <laughs> if you talk to like anyone, maybe not anyone, there's some, again, if you're in you're working for mediator you're making a decent living but in the hunting and fishing media world that's kind of true for everyone yeah. you know where it's like everyone's like getting by enough to be able to work on projects and it's making them a little bit of money but no one's like retiring off their latest you know yeah. short film about some hunt somewhere or whatever 
um, I'd say that when around the time that the pandemic hit or just before it, when we decided to move into the van, I think that's when things were sort of going well enough that we were like, well, this is it. Cause like Amy said, we're just like, we don't want to do, we're tired of doing other stuff on the side. Um, because when you're trying to do two things, this is sort of like the same consolidation I made in college. Um, if you're trying to do two things full time, you don't do either one of them as well as you could. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, when we, when we made that decision and then it's just been, I don't know, sink or swim because yeah, the last you just figure out different... two, two years has just been insane for everybody and, and whatever. I mean, we're, we're, we're making it, like I said, we're, we're still at the point where like, I don't really know what the future is like a year from now or two years from now, things were not like so secure that we still can't fail, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. it, but it feels like we're on, we're on the we're right on upward track. trajectory, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, we just sort of think about things that we're passionate about, projects we would like to pursue. And like I said, the, the calendar is starting to be filled with more of those projects. So it feels like a good momentum. And yeah, we, we don't ever plan anything too far out, but certainly the pandemic sort of destroyed all plans and planning for the next two years. So we've had to readjust and and make do and figure out different ways to to sustain ourselves mm-hmm. but I, I would say that um this isn't necessarily a pandemic revelation although it then became quite uh fortuitous but probably just before that sort of quarter life crisis revelations were like just don't want to spend any time doing stuff we're not excited about doing you know which great easier said than done everyone wants to just like do what they want to do all the time but it's not reality but we sort of saw like just like a crack in the door that we could get into where it's like maybe we could actually do that and just only do the things that we want to do and be like completely uncompromising about how we live our lives and so i don't know we're a big experiment we're gonna see if it works (laughs) so far we're doing all right like i said it's tenuous at best but um yeah we've we've managed to just like find an audience small as it is um that are interested in what we're doing and support what we're doing and so far it's just like we're able to ride that wave and it's continuing to grow yeah Um, the future is uncertain but we're happy with where we are now yeah and like we worked nine to five jobs i worked in the horticulture field i started to push a little bit harder into photography and started to to look at doing weddings full-time and chase was working construction so his job and his stability allowed me to quit my job and and focus fully on photography and invest in digital cameras because I used to shoot only film. So like when we started dating, that was a new thing for me and then fell in love with shooting weddings and, and got to a point with that where my income from weddings was comparable to his income from construction. And I think in 2017, we took a trip out West in the van for a few months and by the time we came back, you know, Chase was like, I, I just, I don't want to go back to this job. I'm doing something I, I don't enjoy anymore. And like, I've kind of learned what I can from this and I'm, I'm ready to move on. And we were able to sit down and be like, okay, like quit your job. Like, let's just make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely like big milestones in the past few years with that kind of stuff too. Okay. I got another question that just got tossed in the pot here when you guys are talking <laughs> about big land. Um, there was a point there at this, at like the, looked like, I mean, towards the start of the trip, kind of to midway through the trip where it was very questionable if those fish were even there, right? Because you guys mm-hmm. hadn't had oh, any yeah. success. And 
what was the feeling kind of hitting that point? Because I, I know what it, it kind of feels like, I guess, from a hunting standpoint, going into a hunting trip and you're midway and you're just like, it's not going to happen. We should just go home because it's over, right? Yeah. Chase, we, we've done that fishing too, just to be clear. Yeah, That's definitely <laughs> totally. Us fishing. Totally. So what, well, what? I'll let you take it because what, the most of the pressure as like a team leader for that trip was on Chase. And I think he was much more in his head about it than, yeah, I than guess, anyone realized. But <laughs> what was that kind of like? And what was the, uh, what changed there? What, like, how did you guys find those fish? What was different about that spot? Were you in the spawning hole or was it kind of, yeah, so I mean, I think we have some ideas, and I'll get to that about what exactly was going on in that particular system. Um, but to answer the first question about like what was going through our heads, I can only speak to myself, but yeah, I was like really sweating it. Um, <clears throat> and it's funny, we have, I think anyone who, who does wilderness camping, canoe tripping, they develop names for each of their camps or maybe not everyone but it seems to be it's like a it's like people naming their vans you know often when you camp somewhere you have some little name that the group refers to that specific camp and the camp where we uh landed those fish finally is called i told you so camp because everyone was doubting um that the fish had been there there was the the guide chris who was with us was convinced that uh, Eddie Nickens, the author of the article that inspired the trip from 15 years earlier, made the whole thing up and we were on this huge wild goose chase and I just kept like keeping the faith. And I was like, no, I spoken to him on the phone. I trust that man. You know what I mean? I believe that there's going to be fish here. I mean, look at this place. You know where this is. You know that every river in every direction from here has like healthy fish populations. Why would this river be barren? Like we got to be able to find the fish. Um, I wish we had footage of when we actually found those fish, though, because we were all sitting on a little island, pulled over the boats, we were eating lunch. Well, so and, here's uh, the thing. Here's yeah, the thing. it was and just like a... <laughs> I, hesitate, I hesitate to say this before some viewers may have seen the film, but I tell anyone who asks me, I tell them this. It's not like we're trying to hide anything, but there's like a little bit of liberty in the timeline in the film that we took to make the story a little bit better. The way we have it arranged in the film is essentially that like, we hit the fish on, you know, like at the final hour, you know, mm -hmm. last inning, whatever, fourth quarter, you know, just before we have to leave, like we finally found the fish and we spent the whole rest of the time not finding them. In reality, it was more like we found them three quarters in and then the last quarter, the fish were gone again, which doesn't tell a very good story to sort of conclude the story on like, and then we had two days where like we never saw another fish. Um, we just, for the momentum of the story arc, we kind of, you know, we made it sound like, we finally figured it out at the very end because that just sort of had a more dramatic conclusion. Um, I think that's yeah. a great, great story. The other way, you, you, you found a ghost fish. Like it, <laughs> it came and it left and it's gone and there's not a trace. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's yeah. the the interesting thing about like what was going on with those fish is that. So as it says in the story, this is true that we had to land in like the middle of where we had planned our route. Um, and sort of the, the way the last team that had been there and to the best of our knowledge and their knowledge, the sort of first ascent of that river to paddle and fish in any significant way was them. And they went from sort of the topmost headwaters that you can start at down and where they completed their journey, which was like less than a week. We planned two weeks and we we're like, we're just going to keep going because the way that they had described it was sort of the fishing just got progressively better the farther down river they went crescendoing in like the most um, outrageous um, sort of like 
uh, ballistic onslaught of giant brook trout that like you could imagine, you know, and who knows, maybe they're taking, maybe the Eddie was taking creative licensing with how he told that story. But um, <laughs> our, our journey ended up starting because of where the plane had to land um, right at the end of theirs, which is like the best fishing that they had. And now we're kind of stuck. Like, do we want to go upstream? Do we want to go downstream? Um, and it immediately was apparent that like something wasn't right because we didn't catch anything there. And that was supposed oh, to be, well, that's true. Yeah. Amy caught this one fish. 15 inch fish and that was it. And that was all we yeah. saw there. But we made the decision to, to push upstream, um, which is where we eventually found the fish. But we fished that hole for so long, not so long, a couple of days to the point where like we started to catch fish that we recognized certain markings on. Oh, here's mm-hmm. one with this pike slash on it, you know? And yeah. then we're like, ah, geez, you know, did we, we come all this way to just like beat up on the same like 60 fish who are in this pool. This doesn't feel right. You know, like we need to move on. Um, and we we're already at like the topmost area we could get to. So we're like, well, let's go downstream and we'll explore all the areas um, that we haven't been to yet. We kind of like thought we'd figured it out based on the topography. We we're like, well, the fishing was good here. There's another spot that looks awfully similar downstream. I bet there'll be fish in that pool too. And mm-hmm. down here. And we went downstream and there was no fish anywhere. I mean, we, we fished miles and miles and we miles went, all oh, day. There was so Didn't much see a single fish. in the canoes up and down. No, a single treacherous, hit. Treacherous, treacherous. And downstream to the point where we got antsy having not caught any fish they were like screw it we'll just go back up just to catch another fish like we'll even catch the same fish again and we got <laughs> so all the way back up all the way back up and they were gone and they weren't no there anyway. um and then we flew out so like i said it, it wouldn't yeah. we thought the story was a little more dramatic to make it seem like we did all you know in the order that made it for a better story arc but i think what was happening there is that those fish were migrating it was cold when we were up there i mean the the water temperature was like 13 celsius or something which is already like spawning we temperatures with, like, for brook trout frost on the tents and- yeah and we weren't seeing brook trout like paired up or making reds or anything but i think that they were sort of moving their way up into whatever natal streams are up at the very very top where we probably couldn't even take canoes and basically when we landed they were up ahead of us already mm-hmm. and we, we we moved upstream and caught up with them and then when we went back downstream, they continued to proceed up. And by the time we got back up, they were already gone. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, there's no information. There's no scientific data about that river. You probably have to go there for 10 years every summer into fall and monitor what's going on to really know what's going on. But like if someone wants to pay us to do that. Yeah, please. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah that, that's sort of our best guess is that we were like running circles around the fish and they were just sort of making a slow, methodical move upriver, and we just sort of had, we caught up with them or... at one point and didn't realize that we were catching up with them and just thought that the water we'd covered so far was just not the right water. And now we've learned something about this place because we found fish in this type of water and tried to find water like that elsewhere, and mm-hmm. they just weren't there. Yeah. And yeah, to what Amy was saying, there's only so much that you can film and also experience. It's a weird balance as a filmmaker that you have to strike with this kind of stuff because yeah, we're really passionate about making films. We're also just really passionate about being outdoors and fishing. And you want to have a little bit of room to enjoy that where you don't have to be quote unquote working or holding a camera or viewing your life through a viewfinder. You know, you want to live a little bit of it. And when we first found those fish, the fishing was so good and we were so convinced. Oh, did you see her eyes first? You saw like a nose come out and then like shit just went crazy. And like we... (laughs) 
<laughs> we were so convinced that we'd made it that like the next week and a half was going to be this good, you know, like it's oh, okay. We had some turmoil, you know, for the first week or whatever, this yeah, trip. We're in it like, now. It's going to just be like this and we have plenty of time to film. Little did we know, <laughs> had we known that like those next two or three days was going to be the only fish we saw, we probably would have taken the filming a little bit more seriously. Mm-hmm. But at the time, like, yeah, the first hour or something there, hour and a half, we just all had flies in the water. No one was filming. It was just fish like after fish, fish after fish. fish. Some of the screaming some of the best oh. fish never saw a camera at all. You know, the fishing was so ballistic and we were all so excited and so relieved um, that this huge project that we pitched and spent a year on and, and cash convinced all these people to go cash like, checks, yeah. you know, to like get ourselves there that were non-refundable with the promise of we're gonna make this film about this fishing trip and then faced with like the idea that or maybe there won't be any fishing at all. There won't be any fish and the whole thing will be a big failure. And how am I going to pay the people back who believed in that? You know, all this sort of stress. We were just so relieved that like, yeah, we totally missed the best of it. You know, like the stuff that you see in the film, which I think is still really like great, compelling footage, big fish and good fishing is probably like the sloppy seconds of like what really went down that just the four of us will be the only people. High noon, high noon, fish rising, huge fish, casting mice. And they're just exploding out of the water at these mice. It was just like a bonanza for like two hours. It was the, it was the type of takes where like you're stripping a mouse across a pool and fish are just like missing it and shooting like three feet out of the water, like one after the other, just like, it was crazy. (laughs) People are breaking off fish left and right. You're hooking a fish and like it slips off and you throw it right back and two other fish come and slam it right after. I mean, you know, these are, this is real wilderness fishing, which up in Canada, you guys probably get a lot more access to than we do here in the lower 48 to places that fish that in their entire life cycle have never seen a lure or a fly. They don't even know that such a thing exists. It's so unpressured that it's just pure instinct. Um, anything that moves will be attacked at will. I mean, it's the best fishing you can imagine. Like mm-hmm. I said, up in Canada, you guys can find that a little more easily than we can here, but you get so tired as a fisherman being like, change into a smaller fly and casting at some poor fish that's just been like beaten down by a hundred anglers yeah. over the last like six months you know what i mean but yeah. up there it's just like yeah it's just wild well or, it, yeah if, go uh, ahead chaser i was gonna say if it's any uh um relief our last uh brook trout adventure had us on about a 13 hour truck ride a four hour train ride and about a four hour canoe ride <laughs> And we had to double because we wrap one canoe around a rock. So, yeah, yeah. that's always fun. Jeez, yeah, Yeah, that's scary too. And the water was nowhere near as bad as that, uh, as the Quebec rapids that you folks were traversing there too. Yeah, it's just it's it's, water is just such a powerful force, especially when it gets some leverage behind it like that. Like when you pin a canoe sideways, just yeah, the in yeah the the force that water can. I mean that's yeah hydraulics hydraulics are no joke man and it's scary we had our first uh serious dump in a canoe in a totally unassuming place here in montana a little too too confident in the past spring yeah all the expeditions we've done up north we've never had like a bad dump or anything and so we we planned a trip just on a local river in montana in the spring it was high water but it wasn't anything it was was very high water it was you know 60 degrees in the sun but water was still really cold early season and yeah i just got a little too, mm-hmm. too confident and we we flipped, dumped in a rapid flipped it over yeah. in a rapid and lost a 
whole bunch of gear, but oh, luckily yeah. no cameras. So yeah, but that that was definitely a, a humbling experience of just like, yeah, I'll always forget who's in charge. I mean, yeah, nature's always in charge. Turns a pretty picturesque day into a, a pretty uh, yeah. humbling moment for sure. What was what was funny about it though? Maybe your listeners will appreciate this. They'll think it's as funny as we do, but we were there. We were there because we wanted to go on this little canoe trip to usher in spring, but we also had sort of like roped in a, like an influencer moment where we were like, had to shoot a product for a brand for Pelican, the brand that makes the uh, <laughs> cases that we carry our camera. Yeah. But they were, they were selling a cooler. Um, and so we were shooting this cooler. So we're out there, you know, in the canoes and we got the cooler with our lunch in it. And we had a couple beers in it, literally just yeah, one, like one, one, one beer a piece that we could use for this shoot. And so we were, we had pulled over and we're shooting these images and drank these beers and like a couple other people and drip. Like folks. I didn't finish mine. I'm like dumping it out, whatever. Right. But, a but they dro- these, yeah, these folks floated by and they were fishing and they saw us and we acknowledged them. We waved and they see us drinking our beers. And then, and then seriously, the, the rapid that we dumped in is we like a hundred, a hundred yards <laughs> below that. And they're still right there in the pool. Below. <laughs> they watched us so flip over their, their view of like us, like drinking on the bank yeah. and a great time to then like, like completely submerged swimming to shore. They probably were yeah. just like shaking their heads. You know what I mean? They did. Classic. They did make sure we were okay, but yeah, it was Jeez. Um, comical the, once we were out of the water, I guess. <laughs> the, uh, I guess one of the last things I want to ask you here too is, you know, a lot of people, I, at least I do in my life at home here, I, I often go to the woods or go to the, seek adventure to get some balance to do a little bit of grounding kind of thing. How do you, how do you guys find that now that your life is on the road and almost like in the wilderness doing a lot of the stuff that you enjoy doing? Is that, do, do you find it elsewhere or is it just pretty much how you live your life every day well i think it's still very much the same because despite the fact that we live on the road we do spend extended amounts of time in wilderness and off the grid but there is quite a bit of driving and interfacing with you know grocery shopping and running errands and things like that so it's probably not quite as immersed in nature as you might think on like a day-to-day basis but you know it, it just depends on what we're doing and where we're at as well. Like certain areas of the U.S. are, are easier to get into wilderness and wild places. Um, and then other areas are not quite as friendly to people that are traveling in their vehicles and campers. So it definitely fluctuates quite a bit. But I think there's still always a desire to get out and to spend time in nature and to spend alone time out on walks and hikes and, and time together, but also... I guess it kind of like pushes us to to plan bigger more remote trips as well too so yeah i don't think that i think it's um we don't have to work as hard to get out yeah because Mm -hmm. yeah i mean we we essentially camp full-time now so we're always it's we've brought it to our doorstep so i think in that regard it's a little bit easier we don't technically for the most part we don't we don't have to drive to get to where we're going but we do spend you know traveling in the van isn't quite like going on a camping trip because you're bound to the roadways Mm -hmm. um so you're never like that remote so we still have to like remember to like get up and go walk outside but the helpful thing is that like 
it's so it's, uncomfortable yeah. to be to live inside your vehicle so you're kind of just like pushed out no matter what and yeah. yeah we arrange it so that right outside our door now is just somewhere where you can hike or fish yeah. or but we're still always stuff. like on the lookout for a multi-night backpacking trip or even just a single overnight type thing where we can get a little bit farther out and do more hiking and exploring and um, that stuff is still prioritized and doesn't happen quite as much as we would probably like it to but mm -hmm. the balance of like being a freelance creative and working for yourself too is that we often need access to internet and it's it's and tricky like it's tricky you know because now that everything we own lives in our vehicle leaving the vehicle is like a little more precarious than it would be otherwise mm -hmm. so and we also have a cat in there yeah. too so like <laughs> You can't just park in some sunny trailhead right. and go backpacking for five days. The cat will die, and somebody <laughs> will probably break into our van because it's a clear target because it's got all sorts of crazy shit hanging yeah. off of it, and it looks yeah. like people got all their expensive stuff in there. So yeah. um, things definitely are strategic, yes. and the logistics are a little bit trickier. Yeah, we're a little bit more limited in some of the bigger trips that we can do. Um, you know, when you have a, a house where you can store all your belongings safely and gather a bunch of resources together you know for example like if we wanted to do another big northern canoe trip we don't have anywhere to store a canoe we don't have anywhere to store all the food all the specialized equipment you need for a trip like that all we can fit is in our van we don't have a storage space anywhere we don't have an apartment we can go back to anywhere there's no you know and we do have an east coast canoe and a west coast canoe though so we have one in montana and one with my folks in north carolina so we we have canoes on each side of the u.s so that if a project does come up we can somewhat easily access them but yeah. it just requires a bit of planning yeah the point is it's just a trade-off you know yeah. um in some ways the idea of like living in your vehicle and going on adventures all the time is like one person's idea of dreaming big but then also you almost have to like live smaller yeah. And it's harder to dream big once you're there because of you know resource limitations, limitations and yeah. stuff yeah it's a balance all right, my last question for you guys here, yeah. and this very well could have been part of the the five burners, but you got three flies to fish with for the rest of your life. What are you guys going to pack? Mm, mine is really simple, but just three parachute atoms. Maybe, right. maybe an ant, I don't know. <laughs> That's really <laughs> about it. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, I got to go two, two dry flies, probably got yeah, parachute atoms. Maybe a hopper or an ant, some sort of a foam terrestrial. And then I guess I'd have to bring a woolly bugger just to have some kind of a streamer there. We're, we really turn our nose up at nymph fishing. Yeah. Not to be snooty just because we think it's just boring and not fun. But streamer fishing is super be, fun. It can be fun, but I just, I'd love to appease all the streamer bros and say something real popular of like, you know, sex dungeon or something, some huge, big, <laughs> ugly streamer. But I feel like the woolly bugger gets it done. You know what I mean? It's the, the meat and potatoes. That makes a lot of sense. I want to ask how, how's Westy holding up? I mean, define holding up. Uh, it's <laughs> holding up. Well, fine. yeah. I mean, we're about to drop the transmission for the third time. Ooh to hopefully repair a leak. So it's more of an access issue and then we're gonna clean up our transmission, but we had it rebuilt not that long ago uh, because it totally failed when we put the rebuilt engine in. So it's always like 
cold enough. But like I said, we're mostly at like the preventative care stage. So it's always just trying to stay a, a step ahead yeah. of the next <clears throat> disastrous failure. But it's kind of like the story of everything in our lives we've said so <laughs> yeah, far. We're sure. like, we're doing just well enough to have like bought a cool van, but like not well enough to have like really outfitted the van. You know, a lot yeah. of people who you see who like would try and live full time in an 80s Volkswagen have probably spent like 40, $50,000 putting a brand new, you know, Subaru has, engine yeah, in it, it and all new components. Ours engine, is, so. yeah, it's bone, bone stock. All the old crap that was in there 35 years ago, just new old crap, but it's all still yeah. the, the, the stock, uh, uh components and we've like way overloaded it for what it's intended yeah, we got too many hobbies yeah it's, it's it's very overloaded it's very slow if you see us on the on the road don't get mad that you're stuck behind <laughs> us because huh. our top speed is like 45 on a good day if there's any incline um yeah, otherwise so point is we we, we beat it up real yeah. bad it um, serves us very well for how how much we put it through we get, um, we get emails all the time from people who watch our videos that involve the van and they're like, man, you guys ever think about just like switching to a sprinter? And we're like, think, yeah. I mean, they cost like a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. Yeah. I'm sure I've like thought about it, you know? But... <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's it's my... not in the budget. <laughs> yeah. It's in my brain. That's, that's yeah. the yeah. other thing I was thinking we think about, about when how, you're, when how you're guys... nice it would be to have a reliable vehicle, but it's, it's not in the cards for us at the moment. <laughs> That's the other thing I was thinking about when you guys were talking real estate too. I was like, man, even a, a brand new van, you're putting out a ton of money for these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yes, it, the, to answer your question, it's, it's getting down the road still. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we're, we're equipped to fix it however it breaks. So it basically, it's not a matter of the longevity of the vehicle. It's a matter of like the longevity of our patients yeah, it's really, to, to it's deal a, with this particular vehicle. It's a mental game for sure. <laughs> as long as we feel like keeping up with it, we can keep up with it. I, we don't really know how, what that looks like. We've discussed it probably another year or two because we're just, yeah. we can't, can't quite foresee the steps that would need to take for us to like be able to afford property or, or make a change in lifestyle in the next year or two. Hopefully in the next year or two, we'll be getting closer to that. But for now, this is sort of where it's at. So yeah, better get used to it. I feel like that's an anthem for our generation is just kind of like, it's not completely broken, but we're getting by. We're doing the best we can <laughs> with what we've been given. You know? A lot of duct tape. Yeah, yeah. yeah a lot of duct tape. <laughs> Um, and Amy mentioned that if uh, we see on the road, which we hope we do, um, to be kind. But I'm also wondering if if we wanted to see more of tight loops. You got the the uh, the awesome videography. You got the blog. You got the art, all happening. Um, where do we? Where's the best place to find tight loops? Well, I'd say between YouTube and Instagram, that's that's the most up to date and. Yeah, tight tight loops fly on Instagram and just tight loops on YouTube. <laughs> That's a that's a whole other story. It's supposed to just be tight loops, but we couldn't buy the domain for tight loops. So we had to get tightloopsfly.com and then it just felt like <laughs> and then it just well everyone everyone just says tight loops fly. So I guess we're tight loops fly, but in our head we're, we're still just tight loops. But yeah. yeah. Okay. But see, that's why we need better marketing brands. So this is this is a mistake. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, yeah, Instagram and YouTube, and I'm so sorry to everyone. We like I said, we're so reluctant as content social media people. I wish we were posting on there more often. I wish there was some ways for people to stay updated every day, but as it is like, we just focus all of our bandwidth 
on the projects that we're specifically working on, which right now is our series for Wild Sake, which you can see um, we've got four existing episodes and we're working on episode five and six right now. Um, there's also sort of a, a complementary or supplemental series that's coming out with that about in the series I illustrate, I do scientific illustrations of rare trout we've got sort of tutorial videos about each trout that we cover in the series about how I made the illustration. So if you consider that, then we've got five episodes and soon we'll have five, six, seven, eight, and nine, because there'll be two new fish in the next two episodes. Um, but yeah, they're, they're coming out slow. We're putting a ton of time and a ton of effort into it. And it's, it's so um, rewarding to hear the kind words that you've shared with us about um, the production value of the series and, um, that the hard work is paying off because we're really we're trying to bring people uh, video content that is as good as they could get anywhere else you know Netflix or HBO we're, we're trying to make a serious series um, with high production value with essentially none of the budget which basically just means that we just have to work our fingers to the bone all day and all night wearing a thousand different hats that any real show would have 30 people mm -hmm. working on so um, yeah, you can find us there. Um, don't be alarmed if you don't hear anything for a week or two. We're still alive. We're working on it. We just can't be bothered to post on Instagram. Well, but we're trying. We we're go trying. through like phases where we post a little bit more and then we're sort of silent for three or four weeks at a time. But if people are interested in checking out Chase's artwork as well, uh, our website, tightloopsfly.com, all of his paintings so far up on there. And we have prints for purchase and yeah, for the, the fishy person in your life yeah. who uh, likes fish art. Yeah, there so. there was also a, uh, some some of your wildlife photography up there as well too, which is pretty nice. Yeah, there's not too much right now, but we're doing a big overhaul uh, in the next month or so. So we should hopefully be putting a lot more photography work up on the website as well. So awesome. Yeah, and I should say if people are interested in seeing us post stuff more often. Uh, Support us any way you can. Uh, subscribe to the channel, follow us on Instagram, buy a piece of our original art. Essentially, that's the model right now is the more support we have from people who can help us financially create the stuff we want to create. It's sort of, you know, like fan funded, essentially, at this point, um, the more likely we are to be able to do it faster. Because <laughs> who knows, maybe one day our stuff will be popular enough that we have enough income that we can like hire some people out to help us in internal stuff but right now it's just us so it's pretty slow but mm -hmm. that hey that's that's our model man so i uh i want you to be very careful on we we should copyright that chaser or something hey eh? what do you think like that's <laughs> yeah uh we're very close so yeah we we get by in the good graces of our uh our, our followers as well um totally. But I, I did want to highlight a few things that I really appreciated about our podcast together today. Uh, first, normally we don't make it to the two hour mark with very many of our guests. Um, Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> but no, I think it's uh, indicative of just how, how much fun we're having and how great the conversation is. Um, the other part I wanted to highlight, aside from the, the production value too, was just I'm deeply appreciative of the, the, uh, the fact that you... I, what I learned today was that, you know, your why, you know, very well why you're doing your, your skill or your craft. And, um, I think it shines through in spades in the work as well. And I think that's what, at least what I was drawn to, and I'm sure other people are drawn to as well. So I just wanted to commend you on that. 
Um, finally, I just want to say a huge thank you for coming on the podcast. I know we just slid into your DMs and said, hey, would you, would you have time to come on to the podcast? But uh, we appreciate it greatly and all the work you've put together. So thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it was, it's been it, a lot of fun. It was our pleasure, and uh, yeah, thanks for all the the kind words. We should hire you as a PR guy for yeah. <laughs> tight lips. Really, really appreciate. It. And thanks to all your listeners for hopefully hanging in there for two hours to listen to us ramble. Yeah, yeah, we we should say thanks to them too. A hey, chaser, you gotcha. <laughs> okay, all right. We'll see you on the other side of the stream or down the road or somewhere along the line. Hopefully. All right, guys. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. And that's a wrap for episode 110, your speed limit on the Trans-Canada Highway, just west of Portage, west of Portage. And uh, huge thanks to Chase and Amy from Tight Loops for coming on. Be sure to check out their stuff on YouTube. You can follow them on Instagram as well. Most of the content's coming out on YouTube, and they have some quality, quality videos there, as you could probably imagine. Before we get rolling, uh, one thing we should note is we are aiming to reschedule the fish up for March 5th. So hopefully that's a, a big go, eh, fellas? Mark that date in your cal- calendar, folks. Did we just name it the fish up? I like that, that. That's what I'm calling it, the fish up. Nice. It's the first time I heard of it. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that <laughs> sounds good. The yeah. meet up, fish up. I like it. We can call it the hookup, maybe. I don't know. Who the hookup? Oh, then I'll get confused in my calendar. Anyways. <laughs> You don't lie. Yep. Don't lie on air. <laughs> so talking about the store quick, um, we just got a bunch more hats coming in here. Should be here um, by the time you listen to this in two or three days. So if you're looking for a hat, check our website out. It'll be updated hopefully by the end of the week or maybe the week after. But all that stuff's starting to trickle in slowly. And, of course, we have our gift cards on there. Um, and if you're looking to buy anything and you have any questions about fitting or sizes, please DM us or send us an email. And we'd be more than happy to help you out. Right on. That's a wrap for 110, folks. How we want to end this one. Chase is just taking it over. Yeah. Chase got it. That's okay. (laughs) Why don't you, uh, Chase, there's got to be a, I see Shellen's wearing his prairie prairie sweater here. Well, that's a wrap, fellas. Um, Thanks for uh, joining in. How are we going to end it? (laughs) Am I in the twilight zone right now? (laughs) Did I miss something? Chase, give us a helicopter analogy here. Uh, keep your blades turning. Okay, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. I could have done that. <laughs> it's just we all died in a helicopter crash on that one there. Yeah, okay. And then you're you're gonna keep those loops loops tight, and uh, maybe we'll keep that uh, we'll keep those flies dry. Hey, how's that? There you go. What's your streamer fishing? Yeah, well. They, they only dry fly fish, they said, so we can't help those streamer folks out. All right. <laughs> That's it. We'll see you down the stream. Bye.